if I was going to oversimplify when people ask me what the rescue is or what we do, when I talk to people conversationally in Target or whatever, um, I say, if a human can get themselves into that problem, it's our job to get them out of it. Before we get going, just want to remind everybody about the Spring Thaw coming up on April 15th in Billerica. We have Chief Eichel's Captain Desrusso, Chief Nardelli, and Lieutenant Ray McCormick coming to do a lecture series. Tickets are $115. They include lunch and dinner. You can find a link to purchase them in the description, or you can scan the QR code on the screen. We hope to see you guys there. Well, response is engine 5, engine 3, engine 1, ladder 3, ladder 2, rescue 1. We've got full showing. Division 1, you're on location, block 23, reporting smoke show on 727. Job Talks podcast members do not represent the cities and towns they work for in their views and opinions. They are views and opinions that belong to us only. We are not here trying to be the experts or tell people how to do their job. Our goal with this show is simply to facilitate knowledge sharing. All right. Welcome back. We are here back in season three. We have a guest in the studio, Lieutenant Paul Morrison from the Cambridge Fire Department. Real quick, I just want to say thank you guys uh, for everything. We're going to hit being on about a year now in the season. Um, super thankful for everything you guys have done, uh, all the support, and uh, don't forget to subscribe to our channel, like us on our social media. Uh, you know the drill by now. Um, Paul, thanks for coming in, man. Happy Thank to you be very here. much. Appreciate yeah. drill. I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited. Listen, I'm fangirling just slightly. I would never <laughs> tell you that to your face, though. Um, so going to go a little bit through your bio and then kind of just talk about uh, talk about some stuff. So... Um, the idea of this episode is really just kind of interview you. You've had a pretty significant career for what you've done. You've been involved in a lot of things, uh, big on the tech rescue, which is, uh, you know, what we're here to talk about today. Um, and so we'll just kind of go through all of that. And then, uh, at the end, maybe talk a little bit about like the rescue mindset and stuff like that. So, um, first off, you're a third generation firefighter. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I'm, I'm very proud at the fact that, uh, my family's been in the fire service in the Metro Boston area for uh, 77 years now. That's without, awesome. Without a break in service. So. Wow. That's awesome. Anybody carrying the torch? Uh, I don't think so. I don't <laughs> think. I think, I think we're at know. the end. It's me and my cousin. Uh, my cousin's on the job in Dedham. We're the only ones left, and I think that's probably going to be the end of it. Got it. Yeah. Um, you never know. Yeah, so this is this is a, uh, this image right here is a, a big one for me. It's actually my first... I, I basically grew up in a fire station. Yeah. So my my uh, mom's dad, and my dad's dad were both on the same ladder company in Boston, uh, specifically in Charlestown, Ladder Nine. Um, wow, that's cool. And this was his last day on the job. So, oh wow! So he he retired in 1981, wow. and this is us. That's my amazing bowl cut over there on the right. <laughs> I had a similar uh, a, similar haircut. If you in, didn't uh, have one in high school, <laughs> and I like to think. Uh, Jeez, what is it? Uh, Forty something years later, that I still have the same smile when I when I'm in a fire station. So, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so you, we talked a little bit about about stuff like before we got into this episode. Um, you grew up in a fire station, and you didn't want to become a firefighter. Is that right? That's correct. Well, so when I was a kid, um, it was like all I knew. 
right? So um, dad was a fireman. Um, my dad's older brothers were also firefighters in Boston. So uh, rich history within the Boston Fire Department within my family. Um, dad was on the job in Arlington. Um, and some of that has to do with the fact that um, there was some there was some hiring challenges in 1974 when he got on the job. So he was hired in the like right before I was I was born. Oh well, um, in Boston or Arlington? in Arlington. In Arlington. Um, and Dad stayed. And uh, back in back in those days, people didn't move. Right. You know, people had a different loyalty for their for their employer yeah, and for their organization. Yeah. So mm-hmm. once you got hired somewhere, you pretty much stayed. We, we stayed actually there. talked a little bit about that in like our generational gap episode, like yeah. the difference in generations of being loyal to like the job versus being loyal to just the career field. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's pretty interesting. Will had a 78-minute long slideshow about that. <laughs> <laughs> All the different things. Thanks, John. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, so my uh, my granddads were in Charlestown on a ladder truck. They were Tillerman. They drove the the rear end of a tractor-drawn air, aerial. That's uh, amazing job. Um, they'd come back from World War II. Uh, dad's dad was in the Navy. Uh, Mom's dad was in the Marine Corps. And they came back at different times, uh, but they both landed in the same place. Wow. And uh, it was a relatively, even though it's part of the city of Boston, it's a relatively small uh, community. So it it was only natural for my folks to meet each other and and get together. So That's pretty sick. Uh, And uh, people that don't know um, about Charlestown, the town, the movie, right? Yeah. uh, That's about Charlestown back in its heyday. Yeah. Yeah. so just real quick, if you don't mind talking about it, you said Navy and Marines during World War II. So were they both like Pacific campaigns? Yes. That's awesome. They that's, were. That's awesome. I don't exactly know what their, what their roles were then. Um, both of them were pretty uh, stoic guys. Yep. And so it was hard for me to go and pick their brain about a lot of things. So I just yeah. tried to like sponge what little things that I could get yeah. from them. Just yeah. through pretty, conversation. Pretty yeah. brutal theater, no matter where you yeah, were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think it... Uh, just super common of, of those times again is like a lot of those World War II vets didn't talk a lot about the war coming back. And, and now it's it's kind of, I don't want to say it's sad, but it's like a little bit later we're realizing all these stories that are like being lost every day. And so like I know there's the guy that does the rifle that goes in and interviews these guys. Um, I actually just a uh, side note, uh, talked to Nick about going. My, my wife's grandfather was uh, in Pearl Harbor. He's still alive. He's oh, 102. Wow. wow. So That's I'm, I'm trying to – I did my own Zoom interview with him, but I'm trying to get Nick to to go to Phoenix with me and actually film, like, a full interview with the guy. It'd be amazing. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's it, common of the times is those guys, a lot of the, the stories and what happened over there died with them, unfortunately. I don't yeah. know if, you're, if your folks are still alive, but um, but that's that's uh, that's some, like, serious shit. Yeah. Uh-huh. So they came back and they and they uh, they got hired on the Boston Fire Department and they worked there. Um, my dad's my dad was uh, the third of ten children. Holy cow! Uh, so his two older brothers were both uh, firefighters in Boston. Um, his oldest brother Jim was a captain. Eventually retired as the captain of Rescue One. Wow! Um, and my uncle Stephen was on an engine company for pretty much most of his career. In, wow. Ch- in Charlestown, so and they they all stayed not only like like local Boston, but they all kind of worked in Charlestown where they grew up. Yeah, I That's mean they moved cool. around a little bit until they figured out what they really liked or whatever. But yeah, yeah. they they kind of got their way back to uh, to home. That's awesome. Yeah, Very That's cool. awesome. So what at what point was it that you you realized that you did want to become a firefighter? So when I was a kid, it was like the only thing that I did. So that's kind of where you know, so um, 
so my dad was a member of a, a social group in Charlestown. Uh, they they built this. It's a bar, for lack of a better term, and it's uh, called the Halligan Club. Yeah. And so during the process of that place being built out, I spent a lot of time there. And growing up, we did all kinds of events there and stuff. So, like, literally everybody that I knew was firefighters. That's awesome. Um, so it was something that something that was basically ingrained in me at a very young age. And then when I got to my teens, I started to kind of reject that stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, you know? is that... Is that why you kind of wanted to explore other things? Because you wanted to get out beyond? I think so. Yeah. I, I definitely think so. Um, and then, you know, some of that exposure to those folks went away. So my my parents split when I was like 10. So yeah. um, access to the fire guys went away at that point. So right. I think I started to give my attentions to other things or whatever and uh, develop different, you know, different ways, different ideas about what I was going to do with my life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when I, so I apologize. The question was when did I actually decide that I was going to go yeah. into the fire department? Yeah. Um, so I kind of fell backwards into that. We talked about that yeah. recently. Um, I rejected it for a little while and, um, I had a lot of uh, ideas about going into the military. And so I graduated from high school in 1992 and we were going, we were basically involved in, uh, at the time they called the Desert Shield, and yep. then it turned into Desert Storm. Storm. Yep. And um, it ended up being a relatively short actual war campaign. Um, but during that process, I had taken, you know, leading up to it, I had taken the ASVAB. I had a lot of recruiters at the house. Yep. Um, they were talking to me about being a submariner and being on a sub and all that other stuff. And I didn't really... It didn't sound very appealing to me. Yeah. And, uh, that doesn't sound appealing to me at all. No, yeah. Not even a little bit. And so like being the, being the oldest of three boys and, uh, with a single mom, she, most of her ideas affected a lot of my decision-making. Yep. And, uh, she basically said, y you're not going to the service. Like we're, we're going, we're about to go to war. Right. And I'm not having it. Yeah. Right. At, at the time, Desert Storm was supposed it was going to be like the mother of all wars. It was yeah. like a yeah. million man standing Iraqi army. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what we talked about is it ended up being, is that the, that's the hundred hour war or whatever they, I believe they dubbed it. Was. it. Yeah. yeah. But, but nobody knew that. Right. Everybody right. thought yeah. it was yeah, going to be Yeah, going into it, it was going to be a, a yeah. long, a long I, deal. I remember my, my dad was in the Air Force and we were um, in New Mexico and I remember him like watching the news with like his bag packed, like waiting to like hear if he was going to be, he didn't end up going, but like at the time, like you, nobody knew what was going on, you know? No, so. They had, I watched a documentary on a few years ago, but they had a ship that was like moored in the Persian Gulf that had, there's just like 50,000 body bags because they were expecting. Wow. It was a, expecting a million man. Kinds of yeah. It was a million man standing army yeah. of the Iraqi army, hmm. which is absolutely insane. Yeah. So, um, so you didn't end up, didn't end up going. Yeah. So mom, said, mom, mom wasn't no. having it. Yeah. And so I went along with that yep. and she's, she's like, what, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I really want to get on the fire department. I yeah. kind of had like this, um, I kind of did this 180, and, uh, I was like, I really have to go on the fire department. My mom had a pretty big job at the time, uh, running a nursing home or a couple of nursing homes. And she had some friends in the EMS industry and she's like, I have a different path for you. But like we can get you to the fire department if you go and become an EMT. Yeah. And so I became an EMT. I was actually, yeah, I graduated high school and then I went basically straight to EMT school. I was kind of awesome. doing, wow. yeah. 
I was doing a little bit of college and EMT school uh, simultaneously. Yeah. And my attentions went towards EMT school. And yeah. I never actually finished my degree. <laughs> I feel like that's a, that's a uh, common thread in the fire service. A lot of guys start on one path and realize, like, oh, I actually like doing this. You know what I mean? So my 19th birthday, I was working on the ambulance. So it was, uh, wow. yeah. <laughs> Good for you. I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. I won't ask you how old you are, but you've been in the fire service, fire fire service for 24 I'm f- years. I'm, f- I'm 48. Yeah. You're 48. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, so you got some uh, got good experience. When yeah. did you, you're also a paramedic, so when did you end up going to, to medic school? So I, so back to mom's path for me, EMT was, at the time, EMT was the thing to do. Yeah. And then there were so many EMTs on the fire department, there was, you weren't really, you weren't a commodity at that point yeah. as an EMT. Right. So the paramedic thing was already in existence. There was still many paramedics, um, providing care out in the field. But the fire department was starting to show interest in that side of things. Right. So to make yourself marketable in the early 90s, it made a lot of sense to go to EM, uh, to paramedic school, right. after EMT school. Yeah. And that's still the case today. Is, is if you want to be marketable, yeah. yeah, if you want to be super marketable to get yourself in the door of the fire service, medic is a is a, a good way to do that. Especially especially if you don't take the the active military service route right yeah right i mean it's the it's the only reason i ended up in cambridge i think is is i well the the two combined together um it's the only reason a lot of places you have i mean i feel like cambridge boston some of the larger somerville some of the larger departments are are unique in the sense you don't necessarily have to have it yeah but a lot of those outlying it's they will only hire firefighter paramedics once you leave the like the city like I, I feel like it's yeah. or not, not the city, but like the immediate metro, like the UASI for us in our area, the UASI district. Like it's almost a requirement in a lot of places. Yeah. Like you or said, it's rare to just hire a firefighter. Yeah, you know, it's kind yeah. Of, there's there's a there are a handful that don't requ- like. I think Newton doesn't require anything. I don't even think you have to be an EMT, and maybe Brookline, and then outside of that, even like at Cambridge, Boston, and then outside of that, like you you have to have yeah, something. Maybe yeah. Somerville. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's and that was the only way that I was initially hired as a right. firefighter, and, and we'll, we'll we'll be getting there in a second. But yeah. that's how I was initially hired in Hingham. That's awesome. So, what year did you get hired in Hingham? In 1998. 1998. And okay. they were starting a paramedic program. They had I was the they had a paramedic on staff who was not hired as a paramedic. Um, he was a resident in Hingham. Yep. And then I was the second paramedic hired. Um with the intent of starting a paramedic service. So we had not even enough paramedics to staff to staff for right. four shifts. Wow. That's yeah. all. My mom grew up in Hingham actually. Yeah. So, so is that it's where really, really nice town? Yeah. No, where did you guys, street. I don't know if you know where that is. What is it? Hersey? Her- Hersey street. Yeah. Her- yeah. I, I know that street very well. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's small we, town. We actually had, we had a guy on the job whose uh, last name was Hersey. Really? Oh, really? The, the street was named after his, his family was in Hingham forever. And, oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Mm. That's a small world stuff right there. Yeah. I like that. Um, so did you guys land up, land in, in Hingham or in that area? Or is that just who was hiring at the time? Um, so at the time, uh, a lot of fire departments were interested in the paramedic service thing. Yep. And so we were getting cards. If you were if you were a paramedic and you had taken the civil service exam, uh, you were getting cards from all yeah. over the state. Everywhere. Wow. Uh, they were like cold calling people. Right. And so... I don't even remember if I selected Hingham as one of my choices. 
just because it wasn't in, in like I didn't live there. Right. I didn't know that they were interested in paramedics, so it was just kind of outside of my right. focus. So that's what, that's what I was wondering. So when your when your parents split, you guys didn't end up going down to Hingham oh, in that no. area. It just was like a car. A no, call. no, we uh, we ended up down. We uh, we moved around a lot, right? Um, for a little while, yep. And then ultimately we landed in Plymouth. Oh, okay. So awesome. being on the South Shore was good for me. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Um, and just for people who don't know, when they say getting cards, what used to happen when you took in Massachusetts when you took the civil service test is the department literally mailed you a card saying hey, we have a, a job opening, like we'd like you to come sign the list to, to go through the process, yeah. right? Now that's all done by email. We still say yeah. we get cards, but yeah. we don't actually get cards. Right. Email. Get yeah, it was physically a postcard that yeah. indicated that the, they were interested in right. coming in. I still remember the day I got a card from Cambridge. Yeah, I got two. I got, uh, I got one, and uh, it didn't lead to anything. And then, so I was like pretty sad about it, and that was the group that came on just before, the summer before you did. And then, uh, and then I got a second one, and I... Uh, the day I got the second card, I got an offer from Marlboro for a job. And so I like called the chief and I was like, chief, listen, here's the thing. I will take that job, but you have to know that like, uh, so I, sorry, I take it back. So I actually called the chief at the time, Gerard. And I was like, chief, I know you can't tell me anything. I just want to know, will I have a chance to interview? And he said something like, I can tell you that we put cards out to this many people and this many people signed the list. And I was like, that's all I need to know. So I called uh, I called the Marlboro Chief, who Chief Breen, like all the respect in the world. He was awesome. Um, I told him, I said, listen, I, I, I'll take the job if you want to still offer it to me, but just know that I, I, like, I can't not go through this process. And he was like, I wouldn't want you to not go through the process. He said, uh, he said I'll tell you what, um, go through the process. If something doesn't work out, I'll put you on the back burner. And I was like, dude, to having somebody do that was just like amazing. Yeah. Um, but funny, quick, funny side story. I don't know if I've ever, I ever told you the story. So when we were doing the background check, the interview process at the police station, yeah. and we all show up in suits, we're all like in a line. And I won't say his name. Uh, he ended up being a really good fireman and a good friend, but <laughs> he showed up late in like gym attire and oh, like completely no. disheveled. And it was Donnie Fitzgerald was behind me in line. And we're just looking at each other like, well, that guy's not getting hired. <laughs> and I'm getting hired. And he's like, he? actually a good fireman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. But he just showed up late. He's like, oh, sorry. I, I just came from the gym. I, th- I got my days mixed up. And he's like, I figured it'd be better to come than, not, you know, come and be disheveled than not come at all. I was like, I don't know, buddy. <laughs> but yeah, 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 you ended up getting hired. I mean, I've seen, awesome. I've seen people come in just to sign the list yeah. in a full-on suit. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's this. There's a wide range of attire. Oh yes, yeah. they have they have on the intake is is like a checkbox is properly dressed for the interview or whatever. Like it was like a yeah. actual checkbox <laughs> on the paper that, that was box. there. He did yeah. not check that box. No, still got hired. Good for him. Yeah. Um. So, so you got hired in Hingham in 1998. Yes. Um. How long were you in Hingham? Uh, until 2004, when I was hired in Cambridge. Awesome. And so your time in Hingham, um. You you had told me uh, you had some pretty interesting things happen. So like you you like said you were startup for the ALS service. Um, you ended up doing coverage for the Worcester cold storage fire. Yeah, so that was an interesting situation. Obviously a tragedy um, in nineteen ninety eight. Um, so do you want to? Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll touch that and then we'll talk about the the training piece too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Cause that's kind of where my love for training came. I had to like fight for that. Okay. But, um, but yeah, we were, um, I was a relatively, relatively new firefighter 
Um, I had just gotten out of the fire academy. So I just developed this sense of community with other firefighters outside of my department because I didn't go straight to drill school, which is a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's so that was one of the other things we want to talk um, about, yeah. So I had, there were people in my class from all over the state. And um, I remember watching, like watching these events unfold on the TV. I think, I think we were actually sitting in a bar watching it. Yeah. Sure. And um, everybody, it was just such a tragedy that just everybody in the state wanted to do something. And the department was so focused on the, the, the Worcester Fire Department was so focused on trying to do the things that they needed to do at the scene um, that there was a, it was one of the first times that I had, I had ever seen them use like a task force and or yeah. strike teams to come out and staff fire stations from yeah. all over the state. So the different, um, if I remember it correctly, I think the different counties each worked a shift out there. So we, we literally, oh, wow. we literally convoyed out there from Plymouth County one night and, uh, wow. and I actually had to, uh, I had to pull some strings to get, to like <laughs> get on that assignment. But I was like, there's no way that a Hingham fire truck is going to run out of a Worcester fire station and right. I'm not going to be there. Right. So that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's wild. That's I didn't. Yeah. So we did a night shift Yeah. and, uh, didn't sleep the whole time we had a um we had a a pilot if you will that yep. obviously had knowledge of the city a, a worcester firefighter yep and um and yeah we just we we ended up fielding some calls we didn't we didn't get to actually go to any fires that night but uh but i just couldn't sleep i was just so excited to be yeah working in a city yeah. you know <laughs> that's awesome yeah Very cool. um so i, I want to get to the training portion of that but before so you attended recruit actual state recruit school, which wasn't common for Hingham at the time. Correct. So when I was hired, um, it was all on the job training. Yeah. And so one of the things that people learn from on the job training is you're at the mercy of whoever your field yeah. training officer training, is. Yeah. yeah. Like what they value is the information that you get, get as right. a new, as a new person. And there's, there's no standardization there. Right. So there was some concerns with my family and it's very long history in the fire service of going to an, like a, a drill school. Right. Um, they didn't particularly care for the fact that I was just learning the job from whomever. Right. You know, and they didn't even know the players. So they had, you know, like they had opinions, but they didn't know the people. And it, right. and it was nothing against the individuals that I was learning from. Um, but there was no standardization. Right. And so... Uh, Ma uh, Marty Pierce who was the commissioner of the Boston Fire Department at the time, who was a, a close family friend, um, offered, due to some complaints from my family members, offered <laughs> to allow me to attend Boston's drill school. Wow. And the chief of the Hingham Fire Department at the time um, was not from Massachusetts. Oh, wow. So he was, he was a gentleman who was a chief in Illinois, he had rose through the ranks at a fire department in Illinois, uh, did some time in Texas, and then came out to Hingham for whatever reason. And he was actually, uh, he was an interesting guy in that when it was time for me to make the move, he supported it because he had right. moved a couple of times himself. Um, and, but he also acknowledged the fact that uh, on-the-job training was not ideal. Right. But he was he basically said to me, this is a, 
bedroom community. Um, and his words were, uh, I'm, there's no way you're going to learn to be a firefighter from, from city firefighters. So due to that offer that from the spurred. Boston Fire Department, yeah. it kind of shamed them into saying, why don't we, why don't we figure this out? Yeah. Like instead of, instead of who, you know, gets you training, right. Let's deal with the state Academy and figure out how to make this a thing. Yeah. Right. And so in some backwards way, <laughs> yeah. uh, the complaints of my yeah. family, oh, yeah. a little lobbying yeah. campaign. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of started, never heard started that process. So and that's so, when I really value, started to like value the importance of proper training. Right. And so, so the, um, the, Hingham Fire Department has sent people since then? Always. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that's a positive. Yeah. I mean, you, you have one, you have one random hire, or one random event that changes like the course of a department. That's pretty Always. cool. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. With the on the job training that you're getting, did you, was the end result of that, like, would you still test out for year one and two or is it, was it No, district? that wasn't even going to be really? an option. Wow. Interesting. Really? And, and I had some, I had some, you know, it's important that I also note that I had some amazing mentors oh, on the job there. Oh yeah. I mean the, the gentleman that I still to this day consider my mentor is, uh, he's retired. He's since retired, but like all the, all the classes I've taken, all the stuff that I've done, everything that I've done. Um, this guy's still, in my opinion, my mentor who's good, good dude. So yeah. 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 And, and like, I think that's important to say is like, it's not like the on the job training or like wanting standardized training isn't because people aren't awesome or good mentors or don't know what they're doing. It's just, I feel like you need a base foundation to then build off of instead of like learning, like, you know what I mean? Like you were saying, you need something that's standardized so everybody can learn to the same level and then you can find your mentors on your shifts or, yeah. you know, maybe your shift does certain things different ways or whatever the case is. You know? And there's so, a lot, there's a lot of specific tasks that we do on the fire ground that are made better by standardization of training. Yeah, absolutely. But the thing that comes to mind, like right off the bat is just as simple as like throwing ground ladders yeah. and how you communicate with people. Right. You know, there's a reason why it's so standardized and specific right. at the state fire academy. So I can go to a fire at, you know, at a neighboring community. Yep. And we might throw a couple of the commands. Like we might not, we might not yell that the paws are locked every time we climb the ladder after right. 25 years on the job. Right. But that stuff is ingrained in us. Yeah. You're Everyone, looking for it. Everyone's it, speaking the same base language. Yep. And it makes us so much more efficient. Right. Or even just, you know, like you're going to. You're coming into a narrow area. You know you're going to throw it on the beam, and you just set yourselves up, and you just do it. But that's all because you had that base, like, drilled into you, like, this is how you do it. And exactly. it muscle memory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so after the um, after the cold storage warehouse fire, sorry, jumping around a little bit, you ended up doing some training up there. Yes. So as a result of the tragedy of losing those six uh, firefighters um, at the Worcester cold storage fire, the the Worcester Fire Department did an amazing job of like leaning in to that tragedy and leading into safety and survival. Yep. And so they held seminars every year for at least a few years where they brought in like the best and the brightest from all across the country in the fire service. So I was able to take classes with um, John Salka. Oh, wow. Um, wow all these amazing folks um, that had a tremendous amount of experience 
and passion for the job yep. and for the safety of the of the troops. And yeah, I, it was it was eye open. It was all um, so there was lecture, but then the best thing about it is it was mostly practical training. That's yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so they developed all kinds of things as a result of, you know, everything that we, most of what we learn in the fire service, uh, sadly, is uh, is penned in the blood of, of lost people. Right. right. So. There's opportunity uh, and tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, so we learned some techniques, um, safety, you know, self-rescue techniques. Yep. And also re- rescuing your, your, your partner or your buddies. Right. Um, that. We had never, like, we would never even would have considered before. So, like, RIT wasn't a, wasn't a thing. Back RIT then, wasn't, right? it, RIT, RIT wasn't even a thing. Yeah. So, so we were talking, uh, me, you, and uh, Eddie the other day about, about we talk about like the fire service, a hundred years of uh, tradition unimpeded by progress, but that's yeah. not always the case. So this this fire you're talking about is thirty, or not even thirty. It was uh, twenty four years ago. I mean, yeah, it was twenty four years ago. Yeah. It was ninety nine, right? Yep. So, um, so in twenty four years, we've developed RIT programs radios was a big one we talked yeah. about so yeah. like kits yep. yeah so like back uh at this cold storage warehouse fire like one of the things was only certain people held radios so they couldn't communicate with downed right. firefighters in the building right so i can't speak specifically to worcester's situation but it wouldn't have been surprising for me to find out that the company officer was the only one with the yeah. radio. i i think i had time. read that i think i had read that before that was one of the that was one of the things too so you know it's not always a hundred years of tradition but it's often reactionary. Like you said, it's penned in the blood of, of someone else. And, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Bailout kits. You were saying like, not to mention, we all have our own personal ticks now. Yeah. Per- yeah. yeah. Thermal imaging cameras. Oh, so yeah, so, we have a, we have a similar story. You and I have a similar, uh, situation with the, the first tick that was purchased in yeah. our, in our departments. So, yeah. So, I mean, oh, that was, that that was right? a, per- yeah, yeah, that was a perfect segue. So, um, we'll finish finish up about the training real quick so how did you get involved with that and you said that led to like your passion for training yeah yeah so that was um with the exception of the 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 mass fire academy and the and the excellent training that i got there um that was the first time that i did some real hands-on hard like full days of training yeah you know you know, like utilizing crazy at the time it was outside of the box stuff. It was, it was throwing a hose line out a window and sliding down it like a fire pole. Like nobody would have even considered that before then. Yeah. You know, or if, if, if one of your teammates fell through a floor, a hole in a floor or whatever, like instead of waiting for some weird assembly of, of ropes and some major thing, like just, take a bite of hose, hose. stuff yeah. it down there, have them grab onto it. And if they're capable of holding onto the hose, you just pull it in two directions and they and come they, right up. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm simplifying it, but the long and the short of it is they could, they could ride that hose up through the hole in the floor. Right. These were things that nobody considered before this, you know? Right. So we actually were, got taught that in the Academy. Yeah. Did, yeah. yeah. Oh, Amazing advancements yeah. that happened as a result of, unfortunately the, the, you know, huge, huge and tragic loss of life. Right. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, and uh, like I said, like it's the same thing. It's, it's always, it's always like rea- not always reactionary, but a lot of times reactionary. And I think like one of the things is like we owe it to the people that lose their lives to like make, make changes, them, yeah. or at least, at least like innovate honestly, yeah, yeah innovate honestly, like reflect on what happened and how we could prevent it from happening again. Yeah. Um. So jumping back to Hingham, 
Man, a perfect segue. So one of the things that you experienced in Hingham, again, another first, is uh, is you guys were one of the first in the whole state to have a thermal imager? We were, we were pretty close. We had a we had kind of an angel investor or a donor. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm sure they wouldn't mind me mentioning them, and they deserve it, but Talbot's uh, headquarters, oh, worldwide yeah. headquarters, yeah, yeah, yeah. was in Hingham, or yeah. is in Hingham. And uh, after, the, after that fire, they realized that, geez, you know, somebody may have benefited from the ability to use thermal imaging as a technology. Right. Uh, which again, wasn't really a thing. Right. Like New York might've had one. Boston might've had one at the time, but they were rare. Right. I, I bet, I bet maybe there were probably five in the state. Yeah. That's probably a fair statement to make in 1999. So, um, Talbot's had, you know, deep pockets and they wanted to help us out. And it, and it was, on the forefront because people had seen it and it was a tragedy that was there. I mean, the, the president of the United States came to yeah. speak yeah. at that That's funeral. Right. So, um, so Talbot's donated our first, I believe it was actually our first and second tick. Yeah. Um, and they were huge. I was going to say, was, what did, yeah. what did that <laughs> thing look like at the time? It was, uh, so the original, I think the original one on the market was, I believe was made by FLIR. Yep. And it was either a helmet mounted one, um, or it was like a, it was relatively large. Yeah. The ones that we got were, uh, Bullard cameras. Okay. And they had like a backwards handle. So like you held it, you yeah. held it like this to orient <laughs> the screen properly. Yeah. And it was large and we would keep it. I mean, because it was so expensive, we would like keep it in a Pelican case. Like yeah. you would treat it like, yeah. I mean, back then those things were probably like 20 grand. They were, I think they were uh, like yeah, 20 it was, grand. It, it, it was, it, my, if memory serves, it was probably twenty to thirty thousand dollars. And you can buy a personal one for what three five hundred bucks now. I guess yeah, so. Yeah, like six hundred bucks yeah. for those for the little ones. Yeah. So what uh-huh. you guys you said you share a similar story about first and thermal imagers. Like, did you? Yeah. So you, that was, was donated. That as was well, our right? story too. So the, oh, that's the right. one of the um, one of the big companies in in town, the town of Stoughton at the time, uh, one of the chiefs was like, "Hey, we need this," and they were like, "All right, well, get two then." Right yeah. and literally cut us check for like forty grand. Do you guys yeah. all have your own thermal imagers? Yeah, we have them all. Well, some guys part of your pack. Some guys use them. Some guys don't. They're right on our pack. They just clip on. They're the small ones, huh. the handhelds. But some guys take them off and they they don't. They just don't use them. Yeah. So for whatever reason, um, the last fire I was at, uh, mine was sitting in the cup holder, but I was like, you know what? That's fine. We have it. My lieutenant had a tick, and I had a, a full hand handheld tick, and uh, we used it the day previous on what we thought was a fire. It didn't turn out to be one, and then I don't know if I left it on or what. But the morning, the next morning, right before shift shift change, we had a basement fire. So I grab the thing, I clip it on, I'm ready to go. I get off, I rip the line off. We go, we're going in through the through the back door. We get downstairs, and I'm trying to turn the thing on to see where the fire was because we really just couldn't see it. We could feel heat, couldn't see it, and uh, the battery was fucking dead. I was uh, like, what happened? There's literally nothing worse. <laughs> Damn it, John. So my lieutenant had his, but I'm sitting there trying to turn mine on. I want to see what he's seeing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it was just, it was a freaking... It's cool that the, you guys all have... just happened. Like the, first, that, but. the first experience I've had with those handhelds is actually our, our academy we just did. There was like a little orange one that they were using for mm-hmm. like the safeties, the walking around. and I mean, it was... It was a lot better than I expected it to be. No, they're yeah. meant, dude. I think yeah. they're great. Some it's people awesome. have no use for them. They think they suck, but I think they're great. Yeah. 
So um, I would use it. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, yeah, why not? I mean, you know, it's one of those things like you might have another function, so somebody else might be using it, but for everybody yeah. to have one in case you need it yeah. is pretty sweet. Have it not need it, then need it not have it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Some words of wisdom. <laughs> Barry, Barry coming in hot. <laughs> coming in hot. Um, all right, so you spent about five years in Hingham. Is that right? 98 to 2004. That's, yeah, that's not five years. That's six years. Yeah. Ish. Um, um, and then you, so you took, were you, <clears throat> obviously you enjoyed your time in Hingham. You said you had some great mentors, but yeah. decided that you wanted to try to get on a bigger department or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of always had eyes in the Boston fire department yeah. and, um, you know, not being a resident in Boston, not being a vet, it, it just wasn't going to pan out. Yeah. Right. Um, so I had a couple of friends. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dig deep and come up with some <laughs> strange ways to say their names, but um, <laughs> I had some friends that worked the ambulance with me, uh, Scott Foltz and Mike Donovan. Schmott, Colts and yeah. Mike Funnifin. Yeah. I worked with Scott and Quincy for Brewster. He's a good dude. So they, they Great both, guys. they both came from down that way. We worked together on the, uh, on the ambulance yeah. when we were, when we were kids and um young bucks and they came yeah and they came to they had gone to cambridge yeah and they were like hey this this cambridge fire department's awesome and uh and they're gonna be hiring paramedics like they want to start this paramedic service yeah so if your name like if you didn't select cambridge as one of your choices you should probably change make some changes with civil service yeah <laughs> and so i can't remember if i did and i definitely made the changes um, based on their advice and yeah it worked out ended up working out for me i didn't realize you had that connection to, to scott Vol- that's my uh, that's my captain uh he's a good dude yeah good yeah dude. we've been friends a long time um so so you got hired off the civil service test for cambridge at Correct. the time they had actually it was one of the very few times they brought in transfers is that right uh lateral transfers happened a couple of years afterwards a couple of years after yeah and that's like and that was like maybe the like one there was like a one off. Yeah, that never yeah. never ever happens. Um and so they put on how many how many medics did they put on that? I think list? it was I think my class was nineteen or twenty. So that's a lot. So yeah. so that was when they had the plan that they were gonna start the squads. Correct. So for people that aren't familiar with um our department, Cambridge, um, we run ALS, but we're kind of a unique service where we run um what they call it kind of a first response service. So we have some dedicated ALS companies, but we don't have transporting ambulances. Um, and so they were putting the squads on, and the squads went up in 2005, six? Uh, May 1st, 2005. And why do you remember that date so well, Paul? <laughs> so um, so it just so happened that I was, so I was assigned to, I was assigned to group two. Um, I spent a little time on group one, but I've been basically in group two my whole, my whole time it's in the Cambridge. best group. Um, so I can concur. It I just concur. so happened that on that day that the squad was placed into service, inaugurated group two was working. Yep. And to the point that I came to work that morning without a vehicle. So we had no, the vehicles were not in service yet. Oh, wow. We were actually putting the equipment on the squad on May 1st. Yeah, May 1st in 2005. And we were not completely finished stocking the truck when a box was struck for a structure fire. And so the squad company, their first 
call Ever. from the moment that they were placed in service was a structure fire. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. That's pretty good. Very cool. So another check <laughs> off another first. And it was legit. It wasn't just like yeah. food on the stove. It was an actual work. Yeah. It ended up being a work. Yeah, it wasn't padding the stats. It was legit. <clears throat> yeah. Cool. We don't pad the stats. Nobody, <laughs> nobody we don't ever we don't ever call one codes for random things. Um oh. so so that's I mean that's pretty pretty sweet. So it first. was cool. It was I and I wasn't even originally um they weren't even sure that I was gonna be on the squad. That was a that was kind of a decision making process that yeah. that was you know, that was made during so I was hired in yeah, I was I was hired in 04 and the squads went up in May of 05 and so I was assigned a ladder one in the time in between. So my okay. initial assignment was ladder one. Yes. And then they were deciding who was going to be able to operate on the squads and then eventually I was I was fortunately selected to be one of those folks. When you when you eventually do retire cuz we all have to, you're going to have a pretty solid uh solid general order with your yeah. assignments going through it. I hope so. Yeah. So you were initially squad two, group two? I was. Nice. Who, do you know, like, who came up with the idea of this? Like, was that modeled after another service somewhere? Like, who came up with, like, this is how we're going to do it? I think there was probably a lot of people involved in the process, but um, I was getting I was getting insider information when I was going through the high, uh, hiring process. Yep. Um, through some family friends. And I think... If you had to say one person, I would say Chief Reardon yeah. uh, was the person who yeah. saw the value in it yeah. and decided, you know, like they, they decided that how it was going to go and what their role was going to be. And, and so it was, uh, it was a cool opportunity for yeah. sure. No, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So you, you both caught fires on your, your first days. There's good. a lot. It's actually funny. There's a there's a lot of people that started their career. A lot of people in the Cambridge Fire Department started their career one, with a one of the guys fire. on your group that got hired with me. Uh, caught a fire. I think his his first shift. I yeah. was bullshit about it. <laughs> um, Story Street. I think it was, oh yeah, yeah. Story Street. Um, so when did you when did you realize that like tech rescue was like your passion? So I think that everybody in the fire service at some point has like. Uh, I don't know if you want to say an epiphany, but realizes that they they enjoy specific parts of our job because there's a lot to our job, right? And like people end up liking like they like look at the water thieves guys. These guys are all about getting water. You know, people are all about pump operations, ladder. When did you realize like, hey, tech rescue is like my jam. This so is what I want to do uh, one of my so when I first got hired in Hingham, I was just, I was basically hired to work the ambulance and the, and the ambulance <coughs> went to fires they, and they called it a rescue. Yep. We can talk about that afterwards. Yep. But, um, so one of my initial partners who is now uh, deputy chief in the Hingham fire department was very active in tech rescue. And so I would just kind of observe him doing some things, but we didn't really do a lot of tech rescue response and they yep. had developed or they were developing the Plymouth County tech rescue team at the time. Um, and so he would do, he would do cool things that I had never seen before. So like we would throw, we would take the aerial out and he would throw the stick and he would climb up to the top of the stick. He would ring his own, he would rig his own anchor point and he would literally roll over the tip of the stick and rappel to the ground. And I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> if you someone know? ever saw me do that today, I feel like I'd get reamed out <laughs> yeah. so hard. Yeah. And I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. 
So then I just started to kind of pick his brain and just kind of through osmosis uh, started to develop an interest in those things. When did you get your first opportunities to really like get involved? So I know you got assigned to the rescue in, uh, I forget, 2001, you said? 2010? Yeah. Yeah, be hard to get assigned before you got hired. Um, So I know you got assigned to the rescue company. Is that like when you first really got the opportunity to like start attending schools or were you able to do that? I was able to do that through the state academy kind of like on my own. Yeah. Um, But as far as like on the job training and things that we have access to and opportunities on the Cambridge Fire Department that I've never, I've never seen opportunities like that anywhere else. You know, typically... I can't speak to everybody, but typically if you want to take those kinds of trainings, you have to go somewhere to take it right. on your own time. Right. You know, there's not a lot of opportunities while you're on shift to do these things. Right. Yeah. Which so, is, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, that's our, I mean, that's, that's our department pinned. I mean, it's like, if you want to do something, you got to go out and do it. Yeah. We do general trainings <clears throat> for our everyday stuff. We want to be really good at the basics, things like that. Yep. But, uh, anything specialty. I mean, you're looking at getting on a, a regional team and right. you're looking Taking to go do all that training around. by yourself. Yeah. And then when you're on shift, it's almost like none of that training really matters because you're the only one. So if, even right. if you're a tech rescue guy, you're waiting for a tech rescue team to get there. So, Speaking so, of which, I sent a follow-up email. I'll have you know. Uh, follow-up email number four. Brown paper bag, dude. Brown paper tickets. <laughs> all right. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Well, I'll let you know it goes, Johnny. Yeah. Um, so Class action. One of the things talking about that is is – Interesting, you brought up Plymouth County. So our next uh, our next episode is going to be with uh, Justin Silva, and he's on the Plymouth County Tech Rescue Team. And we're going to talk all about how like it's much different for suburban communities with the with the tech rescue than being working on a rescue in the city. So that's that's going to be another uh, interesting episode. Um, and I feel like it's super like it's awesome that we can do that stuff. And so I've done a, a decent amount of training with you. I mean very very scratching the surface stuff but like it's good that we can do that because right now the state academy is so full and understaffed that it's hard to get into those classes yeah Yeah. so having the opportunity to to do that and not have to like like you've done some training on your own i know you guys actually did a rope class together that i I wasn't able to go to but you either have to spend money and a good amount of money because these programs are not cheap yeah or be able to that's that's the only reason i did it is just because like to get to the technician level, to it just takes a long time. In the yeah. Academy. Yeah. There's, there's just unfortunately not, you know, there's not a lot of instructors at state Academy. Yeah. Um, they have limits on what they can offer based on what right. they have for staff. Right. Yeah. And uh, so it's just hard to, it's hard to deliver enough classes to serve everybody that wants to go. Right. And so people, t- uh, people tell me all the time that they get waitlisted. Yeah. Uh, and some, in some cases people are wait, waiting for for years to get into a class. Yeah. That, that, that happened to me. I waited for, for a very long time to get into go from rope ops to rope tech. And then when I did, they changed the requirements for rope ops. So it didn't count. So I actually got booted from the rope tech oh, class. So, so now I'm down to, to nothing. Um, but it, I mean, it is what it is. Not talking not bad about the state well. Academy. It's no, just, it's, it's just, just a tough, to, they're just in a tough spot. Yeah. They're like, trying to serve the most amount of folks and yeah. you know, they're trying to make do with the, with the resources that they have. And it's just hard to, uh, it's sometimes easier yeah. to pay for a class and travel a little bit yeah. and get those trainings. And, and credit to like credit to guys that actually take advantage of it. It's a great exposure stuff. to like systems and other departments and ways of doing things that you otherwise wouldn't have exposure to. Yeah. It's cool. Um, 
so let's see where are we at oh so so you got into tech rescue yeah obviously you love it you've told me you're a tech rescue guy through and through um i actually remember being at a call with you i think it was the hazmat um the one that ended up being a hazmat and i saw that you had like the little blue lines over your yellow tets when you got assigned to the squad oh, yeah. as lieutenant <laughs> yeah and i was like what's up he's like well it's not really the rescue and i was like well that that hurts my heart just a little bit thanks very much <laughs> yeah as somebody who worked on the rescue as a firefighter yeah and then when i got promoted um I just didn't feel or it was appropriate. They told me I could they told me I could put keep the blue tats on if I wanted yeah. to. And I was like, ah, I'm not gonna do that. Yeah. You know? Sorry. Right. I have the blue tats on my helmet. I understand. <laughs> I understand why people do it. I have one yellow. I was told to do it. I took mine off. Um I have one yellow tat left. My helmet's murdered so, out. Yeah. So you so you That's went sick. to the rescue in two thousand ten and then you um eventually studied and you got promoted in twenty twenty ish. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's what it said on the thing, 2020. Yeah. And uh, so when you got promoted, well, you, I was I was made temporary. I was a temporary lieutenant for a while. Oh, so that's, that's right. so okay. that's why the the that I should know the date. Right. It would be appropriate to know the date, yeah. but it's it's fuzzy. It's not as as poignant as uh, May first, 2005, in your mind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. and as somebody, admittedly, somebody who is approaching 50, one of the things that you'll learn is that. You know, for everything that goes in, something else has to go yeah, out. Yeah. So that's a, you only have so much bandwidth. Yeah, Barry's so favorite thing. So I have to triage what's in the uh, yeah. what's, a, what's, what's up. What's in the inbox? That's yeah. how it happened yeah. to me in my twenties. So I, yeah, if you if you make God, it to almost fifty before me. you have to do that, you're doing yeah. pretty well. God help me. If it, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you just have to declutter your inbox every once. I'll get rid of the emails that don't matter anymore. That's right. Um, so you got promoted in 2020 uh, to lieutenant, and you went back to squad too. Yes. I was real quick. I don't know. Do you remember? My very first call as a paramedic was with you. Bay State Pool. The guy that got shot. Was that was it a shooting? Yeah, the guy that got shot. Yeah. Wedged behind the dumpsters and yes. then we ended up uh getting pulses back and yes. diverting from Mount Auburn. I, I didn't know if you remember it was you and um I think it was Phil. Yeah, Phil was my lieutenant. Yeah, yeah. My very so the my very first call with uh, Lieutenant Morrison was my very first call as a paramedic was with Lieutenant Morrison, and it was a guy that got shot in the head. That's an in, that's an interesting one to start your career. <laughs> yeah, as, I was as well. We were sitting at the base, and it came in, and I was like, "Oh!" So back in those days, you had to do points to get your medic. So it was slightly different than it is now, and you couldn't get you had to get a hundred points, and every everything was worth so many, but like you could only use one. Like you could only use so many IVs, right? You could only get so many points from IVs. So in order to get enough points to become a medic, you had to get an intubation or, or a, a shock. Use electricity. Yeah. And um, it was during ride time. Yeah, during Which ride they time. W- so. They wave all that stuff now. Yeah, so it's yeah. different now. So back then you'd get people that rode for 1,000 hours yeah. or 1,500 hours before they got the chance to tube or shock somebody. And I got tube, shock, meds. I got everything. <laughs> our very first call, I got almost got all 150 points, points wow. right yeah. after that. And it was, a, it was a terrible call, but the guy ended up, he was young and his organs ended up going to a lot of people. And so like yeah. as much of a positive outcome as you could have, I guess I ended up having to go to court. What's weird is Jeez. me being the third rider had to go to court twice for that call. Wow. I had to go once he was convicted. They declared it a mistrial and I had to go back again. Wow. wow. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know if you remember that or knew that I remember that was the, me. I remember the call and I remember you being there, uh, yeah. but I didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't know at the time that it was your, basically it was like a first for you. It was, it wasn't even, I technically, I wasn't even a full fledged. It was my, my very first medic call on ride time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so long, long history, Paul, you might yeah. not remember it, but I do. Yeah. Um, so you got promoted in 2010, 
you went back to squad two and then you recently made your way back to the rescue. I did. And I, I gotta tell you, it's important that I acknowledge the guys at, at you know, first of all, uh, my partner at squad two, Jose. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, one of my favorite people. Yeah, he literally made, he literally made my job, uh, easy. Yeah. Like effortless. Yeah. Um, and then, and then all the guys down in Lafayette Square were just uh, amazing to work with. Yeah. Um, but the uh, but the opportunity presented itself. I always had eyes at going back to the rescue. Yeah. Because it broke my heart to leave there as a firefighter. Right. You know when I when I took the exam, and I got promoted, it literally broke my heart to leave there. I was just so happy. Right. You know, yeah. and I just I love my group. I love what we were doing. Yeah. Um, I love the guys that I work with. And so, but I was like, if I'm ever going to be a rescue boss, I, I'm, I, I have to, ex- yeah, like you have to accept that you're going to have to move on right. and try something else or do something else for a little while. Right. So I did that and kind of, uh, as soon as I was capable, I indicated interest in going back to the rescue and some things unfolded that allowed me to go back to much sooner than I ever had anticipated. Right. I, I thought I was going to be at squad two for, for many years before I got the opportunity to go right. back to the rest. It wasn't very long. It was like a year. If that, right. My Maybe. time at squad two. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, uh, I think it might've been just a little bit over a year. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so like, uh, I just want to point out like, so, so my, like you, we were on the same group. I didn't have a lot of exposure, like working with you on the fire. But we, we did the several calls when I worked for the ambulance company for the city. But, um, my, one of my first calls, um, that I did when I had this, like, oh, this motherfucker knows his shit. And I told, I think I've already told you, it was we had it was a simple elevator rescue, right? And like, go up, and I'm sitting there, like, I have literally no fucking idea what I'm doing. And you came up and, I think it's like a point of how knowledgeable you are in something when you talk the victim through their own rescue. So you talk to that person through opening the elevator and getting through the elevator from the inside without even being able to see it. Yeah, we've had a lot of success <coughs> doing that. Yeah. Um we've we've been we've been I was I was taught right. Yeah. And uh I had a lot of experience doing that and uh I've tried to I've been trying to like pass that on, you yeah. know? So, so that was my, like my like real first, I don't want to say my first exposure to like, um, working with you, but like at the time I think you had been promoted, you were on, maybe you must've been on the rescue at the time then if, if we were going or maybe I was on over, it doesn't matter. Um, this call that the elevator call. Yeah. I was still a firefighter then. You were still a firefighter. Yeah. Okay. And, and I always knew that you knew your stuff, but like, that was like, I was like, Oh Jesus Christ. So then I picked your brain then. And then when you did get promoted, you went to squad two, we had, uh, I don't want to say luxury, but we, we ended up catching a couple smaller fires together and like starting to pay attention to like radio presence and like communicating and like, like how you were able to like, like to me, like I thought you could think things through really clearly. And like, uh, I just, uh, it was something like, I, I was like, Oh, like this is somebody to watch and emulate in the fire service. So, um, thank you. Yeah. So, um, so you're doing you're doing things right, yeah. and uh, trying. So you ended up getting not only to come back to the rescue, but you got to come back to your group. Amazing, right? Unbelievable. Never in a million years that I think that was going to happen. Right, and it's a little bit different, obviously, because they had to pull in somebody else to replace you as a firefighter. Um, but mostly, Rob was there at the time, right? And uh, no, so 
the when I was there as a firefighter, the, the crew was uh, Chris, uh, Crokey. Oh, that's right, Croak. Matt. Okay. Um, me, and then Peter. Yeah. So I knew I knew P- Peter and Maddie were still there. I thought I couldn't remember if Rob. Yeah. I knew Mike had come in after, but I didn't know if Rob had come in as well. So, um, so you got to be. It's three of the original five person crew there, and then you brought in yeah. two. Such I'll never tell them to their face, but you brought in a couple studs there. Yeah, right? no, such a good crew. Yeah, such a good crew. I'm extremely lucky. Yeah. Um, well, it's a reflection of you as well, like how good your crew is. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah I'm just, uh, I'm so lucky in that just no is not in their vocabulary. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, we're talking about people that any crazy idea that I have, like okay, let's try let's that. Do it. Let's I, do that. I, 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 like I said, I've, I've got to do some training with you, and I get some like uh, I love the mindset, and we're gonna talk a little bit like rolling into like the mindset of like the rescue company, but um, I love the mindset of the guys on your on your shift. So one of the things you'd said is like, hey, if there's anything you want to try, and I was like, well, I want to do that the the Kelly Byrne technique for lowering somebody on bailout, and I was like, you know, I'm sure we have to use a dummy or whatever, and so we show up to do the training, and they're like, no, Rob's like, put me on the freaking roll, yeah. like. Why are you gonna put a dummy on the rope? You got a human being right here, and so you know it's it's good. Like it's just a just the mindset of the people to be like, let's let's actually train on this and do it like we would have to do it yeah. in real life. It was, yeah, it was funny the other day. I was gonna tell you this on the show. Um, <laughs> your crew had asked if for this episode if we were gonna have open the phone lines for a call <laughs> specifically rob martinell yeah. <laughs> he's gonna call up and be like hey this is uh bob martinjello i just got a couple questions for you <laughs> i was like i don't think we're gonna open the phone lines rob and he's like oh you know you know just let me know that would be amazing i would love nothing more than to be heckled by my own crew <laughs> and you got some hecklers yeah you definitely have some hecklers yeah, I, uh, and they keep me honest too that's yeah. the other thing too is they yeah. have no problem telling me you know like they they would literally do anything i asked them to do yep um but they're good about. Yeah. They're really good about. Hey, hey, boss, what do you think about this? Yeah. You know, uh, so they they they're good. They yeah. they no, good. What guys. a great and it's great important. Group. It's an important dynamic. Like you talk about leadership. One is like not wanting to be in an echo chamber. We were talking about that on the way here this morning, and being open to like other ideas. But also like for guys leading up the chain of command to be able to 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 say to their boss like, hey, I like I think like. I'll, I'll do whatever you want to do, but have you thought about this? Like there might be a better way to do it. And, um, that's just a, like I said, that's just a credit to, to some teamwork. Um, so you also do a lot of training now, right? You're involved in, a, in doing a lot of training. So with the state fire Academy, yes. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about like what you're involved with? Like, what do you train on or what you, what you train others on? Yeah. So like, you know, because, because I was so, because I had to like fight to get trained initially in my career in the fire service. Um, I felt very passionate about training. And yeah. while I was in drill school, I was like, I really want to come back and teach here. Yeah. But I was, I've always been one of those people that like, I believed you needed to go and get some street cred before you just come back and start teaching stuff. Absolutely. It's just my, it's just my opinion. Huh? People have different ideas about yeah, that. I think you're right about that. Cause you can get really good at just training and beating training. Yeah, and uh, and I think it's a great foundation, but and I just an example. I actually spoke with someone about this the other day. It was like get really great at training and figuring out what the what like the crux of the whole evolution is and how to beat it. But it's like you know when we went to that basement fire the other day, like a week prior, we went to like a suspected basement fire that was nothing, 
And I was with one of my lieutenants, and he and on the way we game planned it. He said, "This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna, you know, ventilate. We're not just gonna bust into the basement. We're gonna, you know, this and that." He had a whole thing, like a whole game plan. And then the next week, I was with a different lieutenant. And we went about it, and we just basically busted in there. Went to. I mean, it wasn't. We didn't suspect it to be a screaming basement fire, but everything that I had talked about the week before kind of went out the window. And so it's like. And, I, and so we talked about it afterwards and I'm like, even if we just go train on these things, you train what you train and you find the crux of it and you beat it. And then do you ever really create like that thought process of like going through steps and actually figuring things out? Or are you just going in and kicking the training dummies ass and going yeah. home? Like we did right. some good training, training today. Problems. Right. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. certain, there's certain training props on the market where it's just a matter of like beating the prop, but the prop right. doesn't necessarily provide you with like real world challenges. Right. right. You know, right. it's a good place to develop muscle memory. Yeah. It's a good place to get the reps in. Yeah. Yep. Um, but there's obviously no, Curve there's balls. no better. Yeah. There's right. no better training than, than just actual experience. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and point. it sets, like you were saying before, it sets like a foundation. So it gives you a place to like, say it's like an entanglement prop or something, right? It gives you a place to be like, okay, I need to stop, think about what I'm doing yeah. and focus, but you don't actually get, I mean, hopefully we never have to actually get experience on yeah, being right. entangled in wires, but you're never going to really get that experience until yeah. you, you do it. That's why I think like we've talked about before, acquired structures are so important because Huge. you're still not going to be exactly the same, but when you can light something in a building you've never been in or like don't know the full layout it can be a little you know you have tight hallways if maybe you have furniture or whatever like that stuff is is hugely important to make it as realistic as possible i think that's a hallmark of an experienced <coughs> instructor too i think i had told you about this like at the, the first time i really experienced that was at the cmc class when i went down there like you could ask them a question and it was like a hallmark of how experienced those guys were like you'd ask them a question and then instead of like answering it, they'd be like, well, what system does Cambridge use? Do you guys use Petzl? Do you use CMC? What are you using for a system? And then they would answer the question based off what you have. Right. So it's like, they weren't just like focused on their narrow training regimen right. of the things that they, right. the package of the training. It's like, well, what is, well, you know, what is real stuff for Cambridge? And then they would walk me through how to do that. I just thought that was so impressive. Yeah. I think, uh, I think rope rescue is a really good one to, to identify issues there and that, um, it's concepts. Yeah. Right. It's not like what, you know, it's not like there is only one way to do any one thing. Right. Yeah. There are multiple ways and you, as long as you do it safely, yeah. right. there are sometimes a thousand ways to do certain things. Right. And if you master the concepts, then that's real. That's the real art. Right. Right. It's a, uh, I think Jocko says it's not, uh, not tactics. You need to master strategy. Yeah. Right. You know, so like Very not cool. the not the hyper focus part, but right. like the yeah. overall picture of, of yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Um, so you teach um, you teach rope rescue. I do. Right? Um, so teach I teach tech rescue for the state academy. Um, so when I get so I I waited probably longer than I should have to uh, apply to be an instructor at the academy, um, but I did want to have a certain degree of like self confidence and just yeah. kind of be comfortable in my own skin to start delivering these sometimes heavy topics to people, you know, yeah. I mean, we're, like literally in training, every one of our students is allowing us to put them on a system that could potentially be, you know, they're in harm's way, right? Yeah, Everything that we do, we're in to some degree, we're in harm's way. 
Yeah. Right. We try to make it as safe as we possibly can, but there's a, there's a degree of risk with everything that we do. Yep. So I wanted to have some experience before I went down that road. And so, yeah, I applied to work at the fire Academy a, f- a few years ago now. And, um, when you get hired there, you can kind of indicate interest in a certain aspect of the Academy. I just, so, yeah, I just realized I didn't realize, I thought like the state Academy, you get hired and they put you places, but it's like, you can do recruit, you can do call of all, you can do tech rescue, you can do officer, like it's, mm. it's crazy. So. And in some cases you can do all of it depending upon what your availability is and your interests are. Right. But, uh, but you know, I, I, I lean towards tech rescue cause I feel passionate about it. So yep. yeah, I, I get, I've gotten the opportunity now to teach for a few years, um, rope ops, rope tech, uh, trench, con space, uh, surface water, um, and they have a lot of, I mean, they have a lot of really good programs. Yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't identify the fact that yes, I get to be an instructor. Yes. I get to do these things, but on a selfish level, I get to expose, I get exposure to some of the best and brightest minds in tech rescue. Yeah. Um, I mean, I learn stuff every time I teach a class. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the, the folks that I'm not that great. I'm just adjacent to greatness. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just, I just happen to be, oh. I happen to have the right Rolodex or I happen to yeah. like, know the right people, you know? Sure. Yeah. I think you actually went to a training class with a guy that I went to rope with. He's from Slidell, Louisiana. He's a training officer. I forget his name, but it was down in the, um, what's that? college that has like the huge texas uh, oh teeks. teeks yes teeks yeah and he was from slidell and i saw some pictures and there was a guy with a cambridge moment well yeah you had some cool. you actually had some photos from there and i i, I, I didn't end up putting i don't think i ended up putting them in here <laughs> it was like disaster well, city think, usa we, or whatever yeah yeah i think we you know we talked and i'm certainly open to coming back and talking about certain specifics and yeah. this was kind of this is more like an overview or whatever so yeah. if we you know if there's things that we yeah. don't get into today that's so that's so the the there. hope is that uh that this is like a hey this is uh lieutenant morrison and uh we're talking a little bit about rescue mindset here in a minute and then yeah at some point we'd love to have you back to talk like a specific you know i think yeah. that'd be i think that'd be awesome yeah. whether it's con space or um structural collapse or rope or whatever the case is yeah um so going back to something you said before on hingham you were on a rescue yes and now you're on a rescue so yes. can you tell us um tell us what the rescue is so she, like different parts is. of the co- different parts is. of the country even different departments within the same state use the term rescue differently so like in i want to say in like uh georgia um, a rescue is an ambulance and a squad is a, what you do here. Right. A rescue is a heavy rescue and yeah. Hingham, a rescue is an ambulance. So you want to give us an overview of what it is that you actually do, what your role is now, right now. Yeah. So, uh, as, as a member of the rescue company, um, we're a citywide resource, right? So, uh, the city of Cambridge is divided in half, um, but as the rescue where there's only the one of us, we, we go uptown and downtown to, um, to all structure fires. Yep. Um, let me see. So I got, I got some, uh, got a little, little notes. Yeah. So, yeah. um, 
Yeah, so this vehicle here is, uh, we have five five members staffed on that. It's uh, a Pierce 39-foot walk-around rescue, uh, roll-up compartments. Um, it's just basically a toolbox on wheels. Yeah, it um, is a it is a massive toolbox. Yeah. There are a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in there that I had no idea we so even had. I do have a question. So this was a significant change from the previous rescue we it had. Was. Did you guys have a lot of input into going towards this from where we were? We did. So, um, so when this vehicle was purchased, um, Sean White was the captain of the rescue and Sean was, um, very active and passionate about, or is very active and passionate in the, in the world of tech rescue and yep. the rescue company in general. And we've had some amazing offices over the years, um, on the rescue company that yep. have taught me most of what I know. And, uh, when they purchased this, we, there was some challenges to figuring out what we were going to be able to actually get on it in the way of equipment. Right. Um, it was initially going to be shorter than this and being able to get the, um, the Oshkosh, uh, rear wheel, the counter steering steering is what allowed us to, to opt for the larger vehicle size. Right. So we can actually get it into places that we otherwise wouldn't be able to get it into. Right. And by doing so, we were able to have a great deal of our equipment on this thing going down the road all the time. Right. Whereas before, we had we we affectionately referred to it as the rambulance. Yes. So it was. A, <laughs> oh, I remember that thing. It was a fire truck cabin chassis. That's that's what we have for our squad, which essentially is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was a very it, unique. It was piece very, of apparatus. It, it, I think itself, there were. Right? I think there were only like three or four of them made, ever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a fire truck cabin chassis with a uh, ambulance rear end. Yeah. Oh, it was no, a bigger. Never mind. It, I don't have yeah. that. It was. It was a bigger than a regular ambulance, though, right? Yeah, the, remember, you mean like the box? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was literally like a fire truck front and a. Yeah. No, oh, I know, I but the cab, oh, okay, the cab, okay, yeah. like where the stretcher ball. was, yeah. was way bigger. It was almost like the, yeah. um, like the ones that Boston Med Flight uses, like the uh, huge, yes, long, got it, got it. long thing yeah. on a. Yeah, I remember. I remember Definitely. that thing. Um, Vividly from my time working the the ambulance company, um, so you guys carry. I mean, obviously, there's a uh, you can go as far in detail as you wanted to, which would probably take a really long time. But like, can you give us like maybe this is a good good part to transition into this like rescue mindset? So so working a rescue is different than working. I mean, all all jobs are different on the fire ground, right? So maybe talk a little bit about, like, what the rescue mindset is and, like, so what your capabilities are, like, what you do at a fire and then, like, maybe what your capabilities are, um, you know, for tech rescue. And I, I think I have. Yeah. So I, I just have, I just, uh, I, I threw together kind of a list of, of our responsibilities and our expectations. Yep. So uh, citywide structure fires. Yep. Motor vehicle accidents with entrapments, um, elevator entrapments, construction or industrial accidents, transit rail accidents, yep. right? Um, hazmat, high angle, structural collapse, trench, con space, dive or surface water rescue, yep. um, support uh, the EOD folks yep. on bomb calls yep. or suspicious package calls. And... Um, we act as a rescue task force at um, at like an active shooter events. Right. So, 
So you guys don't do very much. Yeah, I mean that's just touching on. I didn't hear. I didn't hear medicals in there. You don't. Know, <laughs> and, and and we, and we are, we're also um, we're also have the ability to to provide ALS. Oh, okay. And a non transporting capacity, right. Right. which is nice. important for tech rescue, is that you can put somebody down in a trench or okay. in the yeah. You can have medics wherever. at the you point. Could, you could have medics at the point at the point of. And injury. so to go back to the foresight of Chief Reardon and the folks that he was. Uh, taking advice from back when the squads went up was that was the initial design of the squads was being right. able to take paramedics and put them into a hazardous situation that would otherwise be off the table yeah. for ALS providers. Right. So that was like the, that was like the plan. Right. And then fortunately we were able to do that with the rescue as well. Oh, right. That's great. Damn it. No, no, I have a job. <laughs> <laughs> Sons of bitches. Um, so I, I have a couple of, uh, this looks like uh, this is one of the photos that you sent me. So this looks like it's not training. This looks like an actual. This was an actual thing, yeah. Yeah. So what do you guys have here? So this was a car that um, this is up at the Fresh Pond Rotary. Yep. Near the CVS and uh, car, I think, crashed into another vehicle or whatever. Went off the road, went down into an embankment, and uh, we just supported it so that we could work around it while we removed the folks from it. So I don't want to say this stuff is simple because nothing when you get into tech rescue is really simple. Like there's a lot of thought that goes into stuff, but this is like a fairly uh, run of the mill type simple call to do. Yeah, this would be like a this this would be novice level right. rescue person stuff. And then you said uh, some of the things that we you also do is you get into like industrial accidents. So you're starting to get a little bit more complicated in in where you're doing. So this, uh, I'm pretty sure this is a training. This uh, is a drill, yeah. Um, but can you just talk about what? what you, so this is this is real quick just to paint a picture. This is Cambridge, and currently in our city they are building a shit ton of high rises. I think that's an official number. Um, and a lot of these high rises, they're in pit as they're being constructed they have pits that are 30 40 plus feet deep um that people are working in on and around and they're all over our city right now yeah in some cases they're putting parking garages under the buildings right, right. so they're going some parking garages are five six stories yeah subterranean right so, yeah um so you want to talk about uh you know when we talk about construction accidents there's a there's a whole uh, plethora of things that could happen but this is like a below grade is that yes. the new dot like Volpe, no, no. Uh, that I anticipate we're going to have many That's of be these, big, yeah. many of these type situations though uh, in the near future. This was, I think, this was on Main Street, um, and this these photos are from probably five years ago. Oh wow, yeah. And so yeah, we did a uh, below grade rescue training. Um, we, you know, we lowered people down to the patient we package them and we remove them using the aerial as a high point right uh anchor and so that's ladder one operating with us they um they set up the high point for us so so the tech rescue response in cambridge is the rescue ladder one engine one yes and then the whatever squad depending on what side of the city it is or we and oftentimes we'd end up pulling in both squads probably yeah and uh and we we also provide that package mutual aid. So I know we do like with Somerville, we do um, like lab calls and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what's different? Just get back to that. Like mindset. Is there a, do you feel like you have, there's a different mindset to work in the rescue than, so you've had experience working. Have you ever been on an engine assigned? I'm in Hingham. You guys ran engines. Yes. I'm, you know, did you cross staff like ambulance engine or you were? Yes. I, I, sometimes I would be able to rotate 
onto okay. an engine or a, uh, the quint at the time. But so, you, yeah. so you've done virtually every position in the in the that we have locally, anyways, in the fire service, like yeah. the main stuff. So, what do you think is different? Like, is there a mindset difference for being on the rescue? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think rescue folks, tech rescue folks, they have they have a mindset, and that they you know, good, bad, or otherwise, they have like a, an attention to detail. I think that they focus on small things. They try to master small things that eventually build into a complex set of skills yep. so that they can, uh, you know, achieve any task. Right. So if I was going to oversimplify when people ask me what the rescue is or what we do, when I talk to people conversationally in target or whatever, um, I say, if a human can get themselves into that problem, it's our job to get them out of it. I like that. I like that. And it doesn't even actually need to be a human because oftentimes, you know, if an animal's in a jam, eventually right. a human's going to go after that animal. So right. it it plays into the risk benefit analysis, but if we the one that comes to mind would be like a domesticated dog on the ice. Right. That nobody wants to put themselves in harm's way to get. Right. Until the owner of that dog goes to get it and now we have a human you know now we have a a, a very yeah. very serious human human problem right? right so yeah um and so when you get into tech rescue just the, we're going to touch just like a little bit on it but like when you start talking about tech rescue you start talking about stuff this isn't all, like it's quick in the idea of as fast as you can put this stuff up you're putting it up but when you start really get into tech rescue you're not talking about super fast stuff so you have to you have to be able to sit back and think a little bit about like what's going on, putting the picture together before you go in. Um, do you think it's a little bit different than just charging like headlong into, into something? It is. And I think that most of my, most of my daily focus is on making these complex tasks that we perform, um, more efficient and yeah. quicker, right? Because if it's, if it's the kind of thing where, I go to my chief officer and I say, I can get that person who's hanging off the building, but it's going to require me to, it's going to require an hour and a half to do so. Right. That's when my abilities as a rescue officer get taken off the table and then they, and they may or may not make a decision. Like maybe there's a quicker way to do it. Maybe rather than put a person over the roof of that structure, lower them down to make that grab and then lower that person down to the ground, maybe we just smash out a window right, and pull them in. Right. Right. So that's where the onus is on me to communicate with my chief officers, make them aware of the capabilities of my crew and get them um, to understand so that they can trust us right. to say, I can do this. I can make this grab and I can do it efficiently. Right. Right. Because sometimes Sometimes there are people can tend to overcomplicate things. Yeah. And so my job is to try to find the, the not the fastest way, right. but the most efficient way to do something. And I think that's an important distinct, dis, distinction. Efficient is not always fast. Yeah. Um, and uh, just going to say, like the you've said before, paralysis by analysis is a big part. So when you get into like overly complicated stuff, we talk about it with hazmat and some other things, like sometimes you start thinking about it so much that you can't make a decision or you have a hard time making a decision and, and being able to like make that decision and be efficient. What you're doing is, is hugely important. I also think, um, 
what you just said is is huge too is like being on being on the rescue you might get to a scene and this is important for you as a lieutenant but also for so in Cambridge we do acting lieutenants so we don't hire an officer every time the lieutenant is out the senior person on that company becomes the officer so you and those guys have to be reliable in that if you have a situation and your deputy chief comes up to you and says hey how do we fix this you got to be able to to tell them how do we fix this because not every deputy has been a tech rescue person one of the things that i've always kind of said is when when people indicate interest in coming to the rescue as a firefighter i oftentimes say that's great i hope you do i hope i hope that that's something that you aspire to because i think everybody should be i think everybody should want to be a rescue person right rescue guy um but on the on your first day on the rescue the first day that I, I have said this a number of times and I'm sorry if it sounds like a broken record but on your first day on the rescue the second you put that R in your helmet shield it's entirely possible that a deputy chief is going to turn to you and say what do you think right and you have to be able to give him a legitimate answer that's not tap dancing or some BS right. thing you have to actually have an opinion on that right and so I say yeah i i want everybody to be a rescue person but i think that should be the i mean and and listen i also feel that to be a proficient and uh, effective rescue person due to the the acuity of the calls that we go on and the and the the how rare they are i think it takes about 10 years to be to be that rescue person that's comfortable in your own skin Oh, yeah. You know, you've responded to a number of calls at this point. Right. You've been to certain things. You've been to certain trainings just based on the amount of times that we train. Right. I think it takes probably 10 years for people to like truly feel comfortable. Gain that experience. Yeah. yeah. Gain, gain that. The street think, credit. I've heard you, yeah. I've heard you guys mention a couple of times that imposter uh, syndrome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yep. yep. And, uh, and so that can be, that can be a tough thing. That can be a tough challenge for somebody who's like, geez, I'm here now. Right. And somebody's going to ask me some questions yeah. and I'm going to have to answer them. Right. You got to know your shit. Yeah. yeah. I remember, I remember uh, uh, Rob on your crew. One of the, I think I said this uh, maybe to you recently is, I don't know if I was on a swap uh, headquarters or whatever, but when he first got transferred over the rescue and he was like ripping everything out of the cabinets, and he was just like, I don't want somebody to ask me where something is and I have no idea, you know? Yeah. And you need that mentality going into it. Like you said, cause day one, you know, get me this. And you're like, what the hell is that? Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh-huh. And and that's where I'm really lucky with the crew that I have. Yeah. Because we, we, we gel really well and we have a good time and we're friends. Yeah. But I also know like they don't, they take their responsibilities very seriously right. and they don't want to let anybody down, you know? Right. And right. Uh, yeah, so they're, they're, they're I'm good very job. lucky. Yeah. No, it's a very high caliber crew. Yeah. Every absolutely. time I see those guys, I tell them. Absolutely. Um, do you... Do you think that there's a, I mean, there is obviously a difference, but in your mind, what would you say is different between working uh, a rescue in the city and being part of like a tech rescue team, like a district team? So I said, we're going to have Justin Silva in here um, on the next episode, who's part of a tech rescue team. Um, and we're going to kind of ask him this, you know, some of these same questions. So for you, like being on a, a rescue, like a, a Metro rescue versus being a tech rescue team, what do you see like the big differences are? maybe some of the challenges that like the the rescue heavy rescue in the city faces that they don't or but some of the benefits you know 
Yeah, so uh, as somebody who's worked um, in a suburban fire department that has a tech rescue team in that county, in Plymouth County, where Justin works, um, versus like being on a, staffed on a rescue all the time, I think some of the differences uh, would be obviously, you know, or let, let me let me put it this way: the advantages that I have in being on a staffed rescue at work is that if an incident were to come in, for example, a person hanging from a rope off of a building, yep, within five minutes, I have at least five people on a rooftop building a system right to affect that rescue make that grab right um one of the challenges to being on a fully staffed rescue all the time is that based on that long list of items that i touched upon we have to be proficient in all of them at all times right and that's where you have to you know you have to decide what are we going to focus on you know this is where you kind of triage the training and you and listen we're humans i mean right i can only push these guys so hard right i mean we like we have to like there has to be meal time there has to be other things i don't know I've, do. I've, I've heard i've heard group two rescue you guys don't even believe in lunch yeah yeah we uh <laughs> we're different um but not you on know, the other side of the city anyways yeah <laughs> tell you tell your friends as uh yeah, yeah, maddie yeah. mcdonald told us I, yeah i was gonna ask what did he say yeah tell your friends yeah that's what it is <laughs> yeah that's a that's actually a funny story we can that's talk good. about that afterwards but uh but yeah um so so the advantages are that we can we can do these things in a short amount of time right um and the challenges are how do you stay sharp on them and also respond to a number of different calls right you know how do you keep how do you keep the tools in your kit sharp? Right. Uh, I would think that the advantages, and I, I wouldn't necessarily speak too much to it, but I would think that the advantages to being on a countywide tech rescue team are that all of them are, are there to some degree on a voluntary basis. Right. Right. And so when they do trainings, they're typically off-duty Right. And they can gain something from that. They can clear their mind and focus on certain things when they're not thinking about, I getting? may be responding to a building fire in five minutes, so I can't super invest in tying these knots in this training. That right. I'm doing. You know, and that's just an example. That's just one example. Yeah. yeah. I think, and I think that's a big one is, you know, if you have, like we, we talked about the advantages are that you get to do a lot of training on duty, but the downside is like, okay, if I have, so we, I think we just got a second vortex system, right? Yes. But before that, it's like, okay, if I'm going to tie this thing up in this training and then a call comes in, what am I going to do if that's the call I needed on? Yeah. Right. Well, and so that's definitely, it's us. a lot of these trainings, like you said, like pretty much require a high degree of, of focus to be out of service, but you guys can never be out of service. Right. right. I mean, we can go out of service, um, <clears throat> You know, we can go out of service and do a, a, a training, yeah. but like if something comes in, you're not really. There are, yeah. yeah, there are, sir, there are, there are incidents and and situations that um, only we can solve, right? Yeah. So there's a responsibility on us to make, our, you know, get ourselves back into service and respond to that, thing. right? Aside from the fact that we just want to be 
default aggressive and get to these things. You I know? love that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like on, on an engine, you can do hose evolutions with the spare hose in the station and leave your pump intact or to just take one line off and still have all the rest, you know, but some of the, like you said, some of the equipment that you guys carry is the only equipment that exists for it in the city. So um, it's a little bit, a little bit different. I oftentimes joke that when the department buys one of something, regardless <coughs> of what it is, they know where it's going. Right. If we only own one of a thing, it's right. almost definitely going on the rescue. Right. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So one of the things we like to do is we like to, when we, and I'll say we don't get every one of them, but um, when there are notable calls, especially some that are like really difficult or noteworthy, I like to give people shout outs when they're due. Um, and this week we just saw in Allentown, Pennsylvania, they had a tech rescue. So I thought this is a perfect time to, um, to talk about it. Um, they had a tech rescue as a trench rescue. And uh, you have, you, I know you have a lot of the details written down. Um, so, first of all, just wanted to say to Allentown, Pennsylvania, and their mutual aid partners, so they got some district tech rescue teams in there. I believe they had like a construction company that might have um, that might have uh, helped with like the excavators and things like that. Um, just wanted to give a shout out. It seemed like a, a really difficult call. They had a trench rescue. It was a nine hour operation, and they ended up pulling the guy out, which is a extreme rarity in trench rescue. Sure is. Um, so I'm going to play a little snippet of a video from who was their trench or who was their um, tech rescue commander. And, uh, and then I would love to get your input on that call and kind of maybe you could talk to us about what goes into that, why it took so long, you know, different things like that. Sure. Technical rescue team commander. What's your last name, Jeff? H A M M E L. What was the biggest risk here? Uh, the biggest risk is the secondary collapse of the uh, the trench itself. Um, you know, the ground was unstable from the excavation to begin with. That's what uh, we presume caused the uh, the incident. You want to pause with. it for a sec? So, <clears throat> so he says the biggest risk um, with the with the trench rescue is the secondary collapse. Real quick, do you want to just tell us what he's talking about there? Yeah. So w when they when they dig a trench. They've obviously compromised the the soil that's underneath there, right? So um, oftentimes there's classes of soil. And so it goes from like the harder soils, clays, things like that, down to like sand. Yep. So um, we always classify in tech rescue, we always classify everything as type C soil or class C soil. Okay. And what that is is just sandy soil, stuff that's not going to hold its shape. Okay. So if you imagine digging into a, creating a trench and whether or not that wall is going to remain intact or not. Right. It's the reason why we pull foundations, right? We have to push that earth back so that we can build our houses on it and whatnot. So, so with that, if we, if we consider everything worst case scenario, which is the, the, the most uh, collapsible soil available, then that's how we operate in the safest way possible. Okay. And so when you imagine that they will probably just operate an excavator prior to this, um, disturbed soil becomes um, unpredictable sometimes. And so that said, um, it was already compromised. Right. And so now you bring in a bunch of folks that are all working around this space and they're trying to walk on their two feet and some of them are 200 to 300 pounds, depending upon the size of these firefighters, yeah. you know, the odds of them falling in at the edge of the trench are pretty high. 
Okay. So that secondary collapse would be they're walking around on what they believe is flat flat Earth, but there's a there's like a bell collapse or some kind of a collapse underneath where they're walking, where it's been undermined, and now they become the next victim in that situation. So we, so you guys, sure, sure. And, and so, sorry, just real quick, I want to point out that we're not, this is not any in any way, shape, or form a critique of what happened. This is obviously a job well done. Um, we just happen to have a tech rescue guy in house today, and this just happened. So so we thought, it, you know, we're, we could use your expertise to kind of explain what had happened. Yeah, I just um, want to be able to paint somewhat of a picture of, of what would happen. What I types imagine. of considerations. Yeah, yeah exactly. and I imagine they, I imagine they took all of those things into account. Right. I, I, it's so, it's so new that we're not actually going to get the breakdown of what happened for a little yeah, while. Right. So. I, I actually, I sent an email out to who I think was their PIO and I'm sure they're swamped with, you know, media inquiries and stuff at the moment. Um, because it's so rare because it's yeah. so rare yeah. and, and it's so rare to, so rare to happen. And then so rare to pull somebody out who's alive. Um, just one question I have when you talk about the secondary collapse. So you shore up the walls, you talk about people walking above. Is there also risk of like, um, underneath like where you're shoring like uh like underground water ways and things like that that could undermine that effort as well absolutely so um some of the ones that have happened in the massachusetts area um so boston had a tragic loss of life two folks were in a trench they were working um they uh, my understanding is that during the excavation process they had undermined a, a water pipe the water pipe relies on the soil around it to support it under its own weight. Right. So once there's not that amount of soil supporting that water pipe, I believe it broke at a weak point in the pipe. And because the water wasn't shut down, it rapidly filled the trench. It's a high volume right. and pressure. Right. So there's, there's always the concern that is there some kind of water main break? Is something undermining this? Right. Is there an aquifer or some natural situation where the water table is high that makes right. that makes the earth more pliable, more movable at that point? Right. right? So you ha- you absolutely have to take those things into account. Awesome. And sometimes in trench rescue, we have to pump water out just to make that situation somewhat tenable, right? So that we can make that rescue. And I imagine that. <laughs> Like up here, like you talk about like a water main or, or underground, but like if you start going into like, or maybe even around here, cause we're pretty close to sea level. But I imagine if you go down to like Louisiana and there's oh, a trench, there's water, yeah, water as soon as everyone. you're, as soon as you're hitting the, the, the first yeah. foot of dirt, you know for what I mean? Sure. So, I mean, I, I worked, um, for a little while I had a side job, uh, working for a pool company and every time, not every time, but oftentimes we would excavate. And based on where we were at, we would we would run into water, and we would have to pump that out while we were trying to trying to right. you know put the pool in and stuff. So there's yeah there's there's moving water underground that we don't that we don't always appreciate. Right. Uh, you want to continue that, Nick? Um, so we took uh, a lot of extra steps and safety precautions to prevent that from happening again. Hole that he was kind of working through right uh, now to get him out. I was told it wasn't very big. It was right? approximately uh, maybe 30 inches in width and uh, I don't know about length, ballpark and maybe 12 to 15 feet. In your career, have you ever seen so, so you talk about trenches and I imagine you could have massive trenches, but we're talking, is this also like, is trench by nature confined space as well? Absolutely. I actually have that in my notes. So trench uh, trenches by definition are 
uh, deeper than they are wide. Yep. Right. Um, they're typically less than 15 feet across at the base. Cause if it's 15 feet wide, then at that point you start to call it an excavation rather than a trench. Okay. Right? So we imagine a trench is a thin right. uh, area that was dug down deep into the ground. Um, and then because of the nature of it, the limited uh, egress and the point that it's not designed for habitation, it meets the, it oftentimes meets the definition of a confined space as well. So this is just, uh, I have no real knowledge of trench rescue. So, um, so you're talking, you're taking a 30 inch wide hole and then you're putting shoring. Yes. And then you're putting people. And in this case, we're talking about heaters uh, and I'm guessing air supply, right? Cause confined space, you have to monitor the air. Um, that space becomes really small, really quickly. Is there, is trench rescue, I imagine nothing is always any one way, but is it, is it generally always you dig down in this area and you're shoring as you go, or do you sometimes take that wider excavation approach to get, to get down to somebody? It would depend. So if there was, you know, if there was major concerns about secondary collapse, you wouldn't want to use heavy equipment anywhere near there. Right. To the point that you would even want to shut down fire apparatus because it would create enough of a vibration based on where it's located to potentially cause a slough in or some secondary collapse. Right. Um, you would absolutely not want to use heavy equipment to dig away in the area of where you believe that person to be. You might be able to make some kind of, you know, some make something that was collapsing questionable you might be able to make it safe with a piece of equipment prior to the fire department arriving yeah but we try to preserve the situation as we find it and that we don't want to we don't want to make things worse right um and sometimes that creates challenges for us to build a beautiful trench box that's plumb right. and square you know right and and so yeah sometimes the 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 terrain causes challenges for us. So we sometimes have to make do with that. And that's kind of, again, going back to that, being able to have your crew doing the tactical objectives and being able to stand back and strategically and be like, you know what, actually this, this doesn't look right. You know, maybe we change our approach or whatever the case is. Yeah. And there's some limitations on what we can do for, for building, um, shoring out in a trench. Right. As far as like, you know, if it's if it's if it's wide at the top and narrow at the bottom, or vice versa, there are some limitations on how we can actually attack that because the the struts should not be operate operated beyond like a ten degree incline. Oh, okay. Because they're you. I mean, you don't need to take out a level right to ensure that they're in fact level. You eyeball it right. But ideally, you want those shores and those struts to be as level as possible so that you're making sure that you're applying the proper amount of pressure so you, to the... So you can then make something slide down or up by putting that pressure. Exactly right. And then right. you have metal on soil, which isn't like sticky tape, right? Exactly so you right. you actually make stuff move. That makes sense. So the goal is to take any... any princi The principles of shoring are to take whatever you put into that situation. The shore that you build is supposed to transfer the pressure or the strength of that shore to something that has large surface area and ultimately makes contact with good soil. Right. So you want to transfer those loads so that you simulate that that 
hole was filled in while right. trying to maintain a space large enough to actually affect the rescue. Work. Interesting. Uh, honestly, this is something that uh, me myself I've only performed in training. Um, so this shout out to this guy. It's for the first time. Rescue, uh, to this extent, he's not alone. There's uh, so, a lot of us. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of us that have only done it. Believe it's approximately yeah. twelve feet. He said it's it's rare. I mean, it's, on one hand, it's good that it's rare. On the other hand, uh, we were actually very fortunate with the soil. Um, it was uh, fairly stable. Uh, the way it uh, collapsed, we had multiple void spaces around his body, which uh, did make the conditions for him a lot better. Um, we have good access all around uh, four sides of the trench, so we were able to warm him, get him the medical care uh, from the team doctors as well as the uh, the team paramedics, uh, and then all the rescue personnel. Can you warm him? Can you tell us just what? Uh, we use... So um, I, we'll we'll kind of leave the video off off from there and kind of just talk more about the rescue itself. But I think some important points is is one is um, the guy in addition to their skill sounds like got a little bit lucky in just the the, the way that the trench collapsed in on him. Yeah, some void I, spaces. I, I have some notes. I wanted to talk about the void space piece. Yeah, um, you want to do that now? Yeah, dude, go for it. Um, so just a little factoids to know, right? So a cubic foot of dirt weighs a hundred pounds. Okay. So imagine, imagine that being on a person's torso. Imagine somebody being in that trench and all that earth just collapses against Jesus. them. Yeah. Oof. So that's only a cubic foot of dirt, right? Cubic yard of dirt weighs anywhere from 2,700 pounds to 3,500 pounds. Jesus. And to break it down into something that's a little bit easier to understand, a five-gallon bucket filled with dirt weighs 65 pounds. And you're so talking it, about a 12, so this, I think the trench in total was about 12 feet by 12 feet by 30 inches. Yeah. So I'm not going to try and do that math, but it's a lot of five gallon buckets. And the long <laughs> and the short of it is because he was trapped. So I read two different versions, absolutely up to his neck. Also possibly his chin was involved. Yep. So you're talking about all kinds of airway considerations. Yeah. Uh, respiratory considerations just due to the fact that that heavy weight of soil yeah. against his chest. We're assuming it's a male. I think it was. A, I think it, it, it is was a, a male. male. It yeah. was. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the dirt. Wow. Dirt is extremely heavy. And we sometimes take that for granted. And it might have been very difficult for him to breathe during this process, provided that there weren't those interesting void spaces that gave him some relief. Right. He may have been. He may have been too trapped to dig himself out. And sometimes if your hands are pinned and buried, a lot of people are like, why doesn't he just start digging himself out? But it's a lot easier. It's it sounds a lot easier than oh, yeah. all that compressive force on him. Yeah. yeah. So was he, he he was he completely like covered or he is his face his face was out, but I like I said, I don't uh, know at what point his his face uh, was out. They were able to t to communicate with them immediately. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just wanted to go back to saying, so one of the things you mentioned is like the team docs. And I originally saw this um, on our Facebook page through the Allentown, um, Pennsylvania EMS. They, they made a post. Um, and I guess they were treating him while this was happening. So like going back to having people that are trained and can be around mm -hmm. this type of incident and provide medical care as they're going is huge, right? So we talk about like having – 
medics on the rescue or, or for our, in our situation on the squads do we and have, things like Do this. we have an established mechanism? Say we had an incident like this where we have <coughs> physician. I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's bought. Like, do we have a physician that we could bring? We uh, The Cambridge Fire Department currently does not have a relationship with a physician that we would bring to the scene. Yeah. Our medical director is has taken the uh, collapse um, medical training course. Interesting. I forget. I forget what it's what the actual title of it is. Yeah. But he's taken that course. Yeah. And he's um, very interested and involved. Yeah. So if he he's was definitely on, the type of guy that would. If he was on duty, we could definitely get yeah. him to come to the scene. Yeah. Um, but we, no, we don't have like a memorandum of understanding with anybody just yeah. yet. Um. I believe at the UASI level, so the the community, the UASI communities, I think that they have a relationship with somebody. So if yeah. we called them in yeah. could get a to assist, they could probably bring a, a, a doc from Boston. I mean, they. Yeah. I know that it's a little bit off topic, but um, you know they brought a doc up for the for that machinery yeah. entrapment, right? So there's it they, ha- it happens, and but, they tre- yeah. they treated that person right there too. Um, so that would be. I don't know if you so, saw. Yeah, that. Nick just threw something up. So. All right. yeah. um, it's twelve feet by twelve, twelve feet by twelve feet by thirty inches wide. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. he's gonna do. He's calculating the uh, cubic footage. Um, so, so when you get a call like that, obviously they're able to talk to this guy. Um, sounds like warming was a was a really big. If you continue listening to that, it sounded like warming this guy was like a huge part of the process, even in the summer months. Yeah. So when you think about how deep you are, how deep it may be. And where that person is, it can be extremely cold. Uh, I've been at I've been at trench trainings before, where in in the summer months, where uh, rescuers or students complained at how how cold it was at the base of that trench. Mm. I mean, it makes so generally. I, I imagine well below, almost below the frost line. Yeah, yeah well, anywhere that you're going to be, um, almost anywhere in the country, you're probably going to be in wet soil at twelve feet deep, right? Or not anywhere, but a lot of places. And when you talk about like water, anything below 72 is considered like back from my lifeguarding days, anything below 72 degrees got a yellow flag on the beach just because you can become hypothermic. Right. At a, at a pretty decent rate, anything below 72 degrees. And you're probably at least below that if you're 12 feet down and, and then you have wet soil on top of it. You know what I mean? At right. what point so the- does it become magma? <laughs> How far down do we have to dig where it gets warm again? This is why Barry's here. <laughs> he didn't even have a job. The mantle. What, when do we reach the yeah. mantle? So <laughs> I think what <laughs> that's like fourteen feet below below five feet. Your starting temperatures right are fifty five degrees or fifty two degrees, something yeah. like that. So yeah. as long as it's shaded and there's no air movement down there, yeah, yeah, you're probably in fifty degree temps. So that's yeah. a, you know those would be. Cha- I mean, Allentown, Pennsylvania, I think, is still considered to be the Northeast, right? Yeah, right. And we're in the we're we're in the winter now. In the thick so, of it, yeah. yeah so, so there were challenges there, yeah. And there would have been challenges probably even if it was, you know, close to the summertime, yeah. right? Yeah. So if if the trench was filled to the brim, and I know that wasn't necessarily the case, we don't know exactly what it was, but if you just all the dirt that was removed from a twelve foot by twelve foot by thirty inch wide wow. is fifty one hundred. No, fifty-one thousand eight hundred forty cubic feet. Of dirt. It's, a, it's a lot of cubic feet. So, so divide that like, three. That sounds like a lot. Times one hundred, right? Yeah. yeah, cubic foot of dirt is a hundred pounds. That sounds like yeah. a. That sounds like a lot. Huge, yeah. huge amount of yeah. weight. Yeah. Twelve uh, by twelve. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Wow. 
I mean, I, I mean, if you think about it that way, that I mean, that makes sense. That's a lot. So I think I think once they once they were able to, they arrived on scene. They saw that uh, his face was exposed. Yeah, which allowed them probably to take a breath and say that, well, this is good, right? They knew where yeah. he was, so they knew where because oftentimes you don't know you use things, you use evidence at the trench to identify where the person is likely to be. Mm. Things yeah. like coffee cups. Right. Or the lunch pail. Right. Right. So if somebody was completely buried in a trench, you don't even know where to start at that point. Yeah. So there's major challenges just to that, right? So you can't just start digging with an excavator. No. You would never. Right. You would never just start randomly digging, you know. Um, so we have we have a, a couple photos that might go along with I know you took a bunch of notes, so maybe um if we throw some of these photos up sure. we could talk about um Maybe they'll go along with the notes and you can talk about like what you would might look at in. That's a lot of dirt. Yeah. And you don't even really think about like the compressive force. Like even like just being buried at the beach. Like oh yeah. You don't think about yeah. It, yeah. So so while we while we work on the photos, so the airway was was not necessarily in question in that moment, right? Right. Um he was probably communicating in some way. So they knew that he was at least moving air. Yep. So yeah. again, that's, you know, as you move through the check boxes of like, what are we dealing with? Right. How, how quickly do we need to move? Yeah. Um, that provided a little bit of relief for them. I imagine yeah. to make some decisions on how to manage the situation as safely as possible. Yeah. And then the fact that they were able to warm him and establish an IV almost a, as soon as they got access to, as soon as they were able to get vascular access, they started an IV. Right. And if they used warm fluids, yeah, I was gonna say, mm-hmm. I wonder if they used that warm, would be a way to, to warm him up. He yeah. he said they did. And later on in this interview, they said they used warm fluids, and they have. Um, he said it's just like a propane heater, but it's specialized for doing this type of work. Um, and they had those running in, and I I I don't know for sure, but maybe you can point say, probably that yellow, soft. Piping is probably heating, heating the air. Down yeah, there. you can use that to uh, you can use that to introduce <laughs> air into a space, or you can use it to remove air from a from a space. Right. It's traditionally used for con space, yeah, um, to make the area more tenable. But you could definitely use it to to push warm air from the surface of the of the soil down into wherever yeah. it is that they're, are these photos actually from this event? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, That's so deep. these were That's taken really off deep. of uh, social media. So, mm. um, yeah. And so I think what we're looking at, it's uh, a vertical view on the right, right? Mm-hmm. Cause yeah. the rope is going down into the, yes. Yes. Yeah. And the ladder, yeah, yeah. the rope and the ladder mm-hmm. going down. So you're looking yeah. from the top of the trench to That's deep. probably, I'm guessing where this guy's feet were. And I, I believe they said, so he was under about five ish feet of, Soil, which makes sense if he was buried up to his neck or his chin, and the total depth of the trench was twelve. So I, I imagine that means he was standing on the bottom, five feet up. So it was probably six feet just to get to his head. And this is all speculation, or somewhere in there, he wasn't, he wasn't at the surface of the of the, of the. Uh, he wasn't up up at the surface. I mean, you can see how far down they're working right there. Right, because yeah, because if it was, you know, again, I wasn't there. But if it, if his head was just at the we'll call it at grade. Yeah. If his, if his head was at grade, they might've just placed some ground pads down to spread out their, the, the weight of their body over a large surface area. 
Yeah. And they might have been able to just hand dig him out of there. Right. But the fact that they use strong backs, so that's what those red items are called. So the uh, shoring panels and strong backs, the yeah. fact that they use those indicated that whatever they were faced with, that they had to make entry. Right. And they had to go all the way down to where you can see like the end of that shore. Yeah. Which I mean, is that, pretty... that's, that's pretty deep. So, yeah. um, so the, we use the term cone of influence. So where that, where each of those struts are, it can, it can influence the soil in a four foot circle in a, in a four foot circle. So two feet in each direction around it. And then, and then as a circle. Wow. So the pressures from that strut, as I said, the principles of shoring are to transmit the strength of the strut to something solid yep. that has surface area to push that earth back. Right. And so based on the knowledge of the fact that a strut has a four foot cone of influence around it, that dictates how deep that is based on how many, so they may need to put three struts in to get to the bottom. Right. They may need to put four struts in to get to the bottom, but that's all determined by charts and information and trainings and things like that, that we yeah. all do behind the scenes. So interesting. Wow. Um, so you, you have a, a whole note on this. So do you want to just walk through? Sure. I mean, we have these photos and, and um, do you just want to walk through like what the notes you took about what happened and, yeah, so once you mentioned that you wanted to talk about this, which I, uh, obviously, it's an unfortunate event, but it's it's timely uh, for our episode, right? So Allentown, um, so the population of Allentown is 125,000. Uh, they have six stations, um, 129 suppression uh, personnel, seven engines, three ladders. Wow, it's just a slightly smaller staff than just a slightly larger population-wise city yep. than us. Um they, they, um, so they practice, uh, or they deal in hazmat EOD underwater recovery and tech rescue and their tech rescue disciplines are structural collapse, high angle con space and trench. So this is just simple. This yeah. is simple information that I was able to, you know, take from, yeah. from their, uh, from their website. Yep. Um, they don't, I, I don't believe that they have the heavy rescue staff. It's in uh, the fire station with their um, engine 10 and truck one. So um, the call came in at approximately 2 p.m. There were two workers in the trench. The first one was able to self-extricate with the assistance of somebody placing a ladder in there. So I don't know if that was a, a bystander or a, a civilian or if it was a first responder. Right. Um, so that person was able to climb out. The first person was able to climb out on their own. I imagine that they couldn't have been standing with the other victim when that happened, unless it was some weird, like the soil pushed him up, right? Yeah. He must have gone yeah, in you afterwards would that, You would think somehow. that they'd both be in the same situation. Yeah. Maybe it was a buddy that tried to jump in and get him or something. I mean, uh, again, all speculation, yeah. but. And sometimes it's just something as simple as um, if they had a ladder in the hole with them, you know, yeah. this happened and he just happened to have access to the ladder. Right. Like, or be climbing like, down at the exact moment it happened right. or something. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so the, in, in the, the person that had to be extricated was like we said, he was in the soil up to his neck or his chin. Um, so that was 2 PM at 6 20 PM roughly was when, um, they were listed as the tech rescue assets came in from Scranton and Bucks County. Um, but 
my understanding is that most of the soil was removed at that point. Yeah, and I think the Bucks County Tech Rescue Team maybe stayed in the station. I don't know. if uh, I had read something. One of them, I think, like went to the Staged. station and one, and one of them went to the scene. I okay. Think. I, th- I think. And based on what we know, so, to, you know, a lot of people say, geez, most of the soil was removed by 620. Why did it take until 1018 to fully remove that person? Yeah. Well, that comes into play with the weight of the soil. Right. If Even if you're just stuck in tightly packed sto- soil from your knee down, right. that may take a long time to get you out of that. And, and not to mention every foot you go down is more challenging because you're operating in a deeper trench now you have to move the soil another foot up to get it out you have to do all that so correct oftentimes we oftentimes will place the the shoring panels into what feels like solid solid earth but as we start to excavate down we have to transmit those shoring panels down into the into the hole with us so every inch as you said we decide to excavate we have to bring that protection down right. with us. So it the, takes time. The excavation gets, I imagine, gets slower, or the, the, the rescue gets slower as you get deeper. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, fine. Um, so they were able to actually fully remove this person uh, at 1018. Yeah. And one of the things that I had for my notes was that they had ALS present um, and due to the fact that they established uh, warm IVs and they were they took hypothermia into account and they tried to combat that to the best of their ability, I think has everything to do in addition to the the amazingly skilled job that they did yeah. in setting the panels and getting everything the way it needs to be. I think that the care during right. the process has everything to do with this being a, a, yeah. a, a positive outcome. We say we use the term bedside care as a general term for like EMS is like we bring care to the bedside. Yeah. This is that version of that, like bringing care into the rescue. Yeah. And I, I wonder with, with incidents, like, you know, so this is a pretty substantial size hole. Like if bringing in those teams was simply like, they needed more struts. Like, I, I, I mean, I don't know how many Equipment, we have, yeah. but like, it Absolutely. looks like, you know, if you're going, I mean, that looks like 14, 15 feet deep. And like you said, the, the zone of influence or co- cone or zone cone cone, like, you might need a, a, a lot of struts. Now, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, it might, you know, you might, you might call mutual aid in just for equipment. Yeah. Right. You know, right. Yeah. Or you might want to, you might need to relieve your people. I mean, we're talking about a long, a long, a long I think that's, I think that's probably a, bi- a big thing yeah. too, is relieving people like yeah. six hours digging in dirt is yeah, high stress. Listen, too. We all, again, we all want to be in there and we all want to do it. And, but at some point, somebody fresh is going to be more effective, you know? Yeah. You need to take a mental break. It's a high acuity, like you said, yeah. you know, high acuity, low occurrence. Yeah. Um, there, so there have been certain, um, there have been certain stories that have been communicated of long term rescues where skilled personnel that are instructors and masters in this, in their field have asked for tools that were, completely inappropriate at that point because they were just so focused in the situation that they just, yeah. their mind starts to, every once in a while, I'm just going to say, let me take a step back. Yeah. Let, yeah. Me, let me look at this objectively. Yeah. yeah, You know, the solution to the problem is outside of my very narrow view right now. Yeah, absolutely. Kinda like that stress inoculation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a, a pretty cool ending to this. We'll get into one second. So, but real quick in, in a, like a, a two minute version of obviously we see the stress we talked about this but just a 
just a quick down and dirty like trench rescue this is kind of the the steps you take so you arrive you find the guy start treatment then what yeah so um you identify where the person is yeah you um do lockout tag out to the best of your ability shut equipment down that's not necessarily uh that's not necessary that's that's running nearby right so you you deal with that stuff um you do air monitoring to make sure that it's even habitable yep. for you. And then if it's not, then you have to deal with that, whether you bring in a ventilation system to push bad air out or to pull bad air out or whatever. Um, and then you're going to develop uh, an action plan or kind of a direction where you can actually make entrance. So you're going to identify the safest way to get close to the hot zone, if you will. Yep. Because the hot zone is the trench itself okay. and the area around. And then the warm zone is where the people are that are assisting with that. And then the cold zone is obviously where the IC is and the media and all that other stuff, right? Okay. Um, so you're still going to establish zones. You would put, you would ideally put ground pads down because, like I said, um, a just pers- to transfer all the energy of Correct. people walking around. So, like a 200 pound person standing on a small, like the size of a, 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 a pie plate yep. on the earth believe it or not, is exerting more pressure per square inch on the earth than an excavator is with big, gigantic treads. Because it's all based on surface area, and an excavator could be 60,000 pounds. So just a a way to put this in perspective is uh, for Tech Rescue is airbags, where you're talking about 15 PSI is lifting potentially 30,000 pounds because it's lifting 15 PSI, but it has 1,000 square inches, so that's 15,000 pounds of pressure it can, Correct. It can put up so to that point you would want to put ground pads down to try to disperse the weight of the people that are working around the the trench to yep. not create secondary collapses and then you would start to bring in your panel team so the folks that would be setting those red shore form panels with the strong backs they would start to bring those in and then there would be folks that would be placing the struts shooting those struts to a pressure it depends on which uh, device you use, yep. but oftentimes the accepted practice is you shoot those to 200 PSI and then you set the collars and disconnect the hoses. So now it goes from being a pneumatic strut to a mechanical strut. You nail those in and now that creates that space. It creates the, the, the safe space, the kind of build in place trench box yep. that you need to affect that rescue. Um, and then all the other things that go along with that. And then, you know, depending upon what happens with the situation, ideally this is a, this was a positive outcome, but you might have to retrieve some of your equipment at some point too. And then that's, and then that's a hugely hazardous situation because now you have applied all these forces to previously unstable earth. And now if you want to retrieve your very expensive struts, I was going to say, I don't know how much to set up. Paratech struts is, but I imagine it's uh, enough that you're not leaving them in a hole. Right. So you have to be very careful when you decide to retrieve them. And that, and you know, that was in fairness, you did ask for kind of a quick and dirty. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, you know, that's perfect. But yeah, that's, that's what, one, you, what you would do. One question I have is these strong back panels. Um, you're going down to the level of like where the collapse ended, I imagine. Right. And then, so part of it is you have to dig that soil and get it out. Are you yep. doing that with like buckets or? Yes. How far do you go down before you need to readjust and put 
like put another panel or put another strong back or lower the strong back so that the you're not putting yourself at risk again. So the, yeah, there's a bunch of different information out there, but I would feel uncomfortable being um, a foot underneath some level of protection. Yeah. Okay. I and mean, you, again, if you're thinking a foot by 12 feet by 30 inches, that's a, a lot of soil. Yeah. And you would never want to be outside of your, your panel set, right? So one panel goes in, an opposing panel goes in. Yeah. So that's considered a panel set. And then you put struts across, and then you commit rescuers into that space. Gotcha. So but if you treat it like the floor is lava, yeah. if you can actually <laughs> be, if you can be outside, if you can be outside, I found a way to fit lava into the column. Oh, thank you. Love I it. appreciate that. Love it. I knew if we went far enough, we would hit lava. <laughs> but if you're outside that panel set yeah. in training, that's one of the few times we actually raise our voice with the students. If you're outside that panel set, you're in, in an unsafe area. Because yeah. oh, in yeah. training, you're actually doing this in a real trench, I imagine. Uh, yeah, so I've trained in concrete trenches, which yeah. are safe. The challenges with those is that it becomes, it it's, defeating as John said, it's like defeating the prop, right? Yeah. Are we defeating the prop or are we, are we rising to the challenge? Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, live trenches are the best way to train. It's just there's a lot of logistics involved. Yeah. Right. So you have your, I'm looking at the picture, you have your vertical strong backs. And then you have, what are those? They run horizontally that the struts seem the to The shiny be. metal pieces? Yes. So those are called whalers or whales. Yep. And what those allow you to do is once you have those set, you can actually remove a strut because they're so strong on the horizontal that you could remove a strut to allow you access to the patient. So it gives gotcha. you more room to, to move around. Yes. Gives and you more real estate inside that trench. Would so you, it nice. transmit the, transmits the forces across multiple strong backs. Yep. And then you can pull a strut out or a, okay. a set of struts out and still be safe operating mm. there. So it would allow you to bring a Stokes in. Okay. A, a oh, okay. Which I, which I think they actually took the guy out on a Stokes. Yeah. Um, question for you, though, is so you have two of those strong backs right next to each other is that one the two there's two red pieces with a piece of like wood in the middle is that correct one? so they determined so the the they're made out of typical um plywood yeah right so the red portion there is approximately four feet across okay and from the the height of the red portion is eight feet okay and then they just round off the sides because if we leave them squared off that becomes a place where they get damaged Okay. And so it just makes it easier to store, manage, move, stuff like that. And there's a gap of what I imagine if you're a couple feet of dirt there. And do you see, so you also see the two strong backs. Yeah. And then there's a couple vertical pieces of lumber there. Yeah. So that's called supplemental shoring or supplemental sheeting. Okay. And you can do that in situations where you're going to have a whaler span that okay. space. So okay. ideally you're going to want those strong backs to be touching each other. Right. And have an opposing agent on the opposite side. Yep. But sometimes you don't need the real estate. So they probably needed something wider than eight feet across. Yep. But they didn't want to bring another panel in there. Yeah. So it looks to me just by based on the, what I know about building materials is I see panel. I see at least one or two two by twelves there. Yep. And then I see another panel. So that's four feet wide and then two two by twelves. So that's two feet. And yep. then another four feet wide. So, so they basically de determined that they had a ten foot area that they needed to work in. Right. 
So that was how they and, dealt. And with I that. also imagine you want to excavate or be operating in the not the smallest footprint, but if you made that twelve feet, well, now you have to move twelve feet of stuff out of there. Right. So by making it ten feet, it's literally two feet less that you have to deal with. Right. And so similar to what we <clears throat> talked about earlier, as far as you, there is a way. Not that they did this, but there is a way to overcomplicate things. Right. And so the goal is to be as efficient as possible. Right. So because they knew where the patient was, they were able to say. There have been situations where they've only used one panel set right. based on the fact that they had great intel on where that person was. Right. So they were able to effect a rescue with one panel set. So ideally, the least amount of equipment necessary to do the job is the way to go. Because right. sometimes if you overcomplicate it and somebody comes in and says, we're automatically going to use we're automatically going to use six or eight panels on this. Right. That increases the amount of time before you're actually getting the person out of the, out of the space. Gotcha. Um, that's awesome, man. Um, Very interesting. Anything else to add to that? No, no. Um, so other than the fact that they, they did an amazing job. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I was going to say. So just, just to repeat again, that, um, this is a, this is a shout out because this is a, a rare call. It's a tough call. And, you know, I think if you go in for a recovery, it's a different mindset than when you have a savable life. And so like that burden of keeping that person alive weighs on you, I think even more. So, so you have a savable life. So, so you, the stress levels are, I imagine a little bit higher. Um, and, uh, and these guys just did, did an awesome job. So again, this is just a shout out to say nice work. Um, great job, yeah. great job on a, on a tough call. And, uh, you want to tell them the surprise ending that guy got? Oh, yeah. So the story is that I guess um, very close to the final stages of his extrication, uh, I guess his wife informed him that she was pregnant with their first child. Yeah, Yeah. it's awesome. So, (laughs) and uh, what a way to like you know if that guy that guy's Uh, such an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And and all accounts, I thirty, I heard he had like some serious injuries or whatever, but he's. Stable. expected to um, yeah. to live and all wow. that stuff and, and when you think about again going back to the the weight and the forces of that soil yeah. it's yeah. it makes it understandable as to how he might have had some significant injuries so great job allentown pennsylvania your rescue partners from uh from from the different tech rescue teams ems police public works i think there was like an excavation company um, it's a, uh, we talk about mutual aid all the time and we can't always do this job by ourselves. So just a huge shout out to those guys. Yeah. Um, uh, I think on that note that, uh, brings us to the, to the end today. That was a awesome episode. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming LT. Yeah. Really yeah, we really appreciate humbling. it. I'm glad I was um, able to come out. Hopefully, like we said, this is the first of, uh, multiple times we can have you out. Um, yeah. and, uh, we can get into some more of like the actual technical training. So if anybody's watching this and they have something there, interested specifically in hearing about um please reach out to us we'd we'd love to if we can make it happen um please don't forget to like subscribe you know the deal and uh thanks for having us back for a season three we're pretty excited boom lieutenant thanks for the wisdom job talks out